Emergency Medicine Abstract with Sanjay and Mike. Hello, EMA fans. Da, da, da. Hey, EMA fans, not fans. Maybe yeah. some haters Re- out there reluctant listening. listeners. People in Russian torture chambers that are being compelled to listen to this as part of their punishment. Reminds me of the, you remember the the Howard Stern movie, like from a long time ago? No, I I didn't watch that. Oh, you didn't? Oh, he goes through this whole thing about how like he has, like the people who actually hate listening to him are more numerous than the people who like listening (laughs) to him. And they both gave the same answer for why they listen to him. I see. You know, they like ask the people like, oh, you know, you like listening to Howard. I want to hear what he's going to say next. You know, and then they ask the people who hate listening to him. They're like, I want to hear what he's going to say next. <laughs> but it was like the same. It's very funny. Maybe that's like how EMA is. That sounds, that sounds very funny. <laughs> well, I wanted to start off this month by thanking some listeners for sending in stuff. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We have a couple of thank yous. The, a couple of thank yous. First of all, thank you to everybody who keeps sending in their papers. And we have some papers or at least one paper this month that was sent in, although our search strategy caught it anyway. But I appreciate them sending them in to make sure that we don't uh, we don't miss anything. But there are a couple of other special thank yous for send-ins I'd like to make. And the first goes out to Dr. Brown, who sent us in his medically related April Fool's joke, which is it's great. It's a good one. Yeah, it's great. So basically, he's like uh, you know, it's like teaching a class, and he's talking like about one of the these cre- intro to clinical medicine. Yeah, type it's like thing. a physical exam kind of a thing. And then he asks somebody to come up as a volunteer for something and then proceeds to say that he is now going to teach everybody how to do the cremasteric reflex, yes. asking that person to drop their pants. <laughs> right. The uh, young medical student looked bashfully and start, started to walk away slowly, uh, terrified, but then he unloaded the April Fools. Yes. So that's Excellent. a good one. Excellent. Great April Fools. And we want to thank uh, Dr. Carlson, right? Yeah, Dr. Justin Carlson for his awesome referrals for a couple of papers, but more importantly, for mocking me for my predictions or lack of predictions vis-a-vis the Los Angeles Rams, noting that, like, you know, obviously I said that the Rams were looking bad and they weren't going to make the Super Bowl and all these things that went back and forth. And so he, as a lifelong Buffalo Bills fan, has asked me to please, please, please predict that the Buffalo Bills cannot possibly win the Super Bowl. And so, go Pats. Oh, burn. And finally, a very special shout out to my daughter, who's turning 17 today. Not in August, but on June 6th as we're taping this. So happy birthday, Sophia. She just turned 17. She's very excited. And um, we're looking forward to a great summer and then a great senior year. Yeah, you could, if you want all the listeners, we can pause so they can sing Sophia Happy Birthday. <laughs> I think that'd be nice when you record it, send it in. Oh, yeah. If you want to sing my daughter Happy Birthday and send it in, I'll be happy to share that with her. And if you don't, I'll understand. <laughs> Your daughter has been busy lately, right? Because she made a big switch. Yeah, she's been a longtime soccer player, a very high-level soccer player, and then this spring fell in love with track. Where well, she- literally, I feel like woke up one morning and was like, Mm, I'm going to try track, and then I'm going to beat everybody on Earth in (laughs) track. Yeah, so she's like, well, not everybody on Earth, uh, but a lot of people, all but 20 people in California. So she's, uh, yeah, she went out for track this spring for the first time, got on the track, and uh, they made her run hurdles. They just said, "Uh, you're going to, you, 
hurdles. You're tall. <laughs> you run hurdles. That's no. Her her coach has no Eastern European accent. He's just a dude, and he said, "I think you'll be good at it." And sure enough, she is. And so she's like second all time on her school, which is a very high level school, and she's number twenty in the state in terms at the one hundred hurdles. And so this weekend we had a little tune up race because she's starting the Junior Olympics start next weekend. So that'll be fun. And we've got a couple of rounds. I guess the first round is fairly local. It's like the, the California version. Then it's all of Region 15, which includes Arizona and a, a couple other states. And then if she qualifies through that, she'll go to the, the National Junior Olympics, which yeah, see, is in July, which is great. And I, I, we're, we're hopeful. I know a little bit about soccer. You know, I'd get into mm-hmm. World Cup. I don't know much about track, truth yep. be told. But having gone to one of Sophia's track meets, I know what fast is. Right? I know when you're like, you know, more than two or three human lengths ahead of the next person, that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. She, well, she's always been fast. So track meets are awesome, by the way. If you guys are out there and your kids are like, yeah, we're trying to find sports, give track a whirl. It is so fun. Now I've been out at like, I don't even know, at least a dozen or more track meets in the last couple months. So fun. It's like, I, I liken it to a sports festival. It's not like a normal game where there's like all this tension between teams and rivals and stuff like that. Everybody's in a really, really good mood, except for the, you know, between 14 seconds and three minutes that you're, or five minutes that your kid is running, then they're a little bit more tense. But otherwise, everybody's having a good time. You can win the race. You can set a PR. You can do both. All sorts of ways to succeed in a track meet. Very different than a sport, like a typical sporting event. I, I have thoroughly enjoyed it, as has my wife, and she's not even a sports fan. Well, good luck to Sophia. Yes. I'll let the... you know in the next, uh, next month how she did and whether she's, at that point, she'll have qualified for the National Junior Olympics or not. And we'll find out. So right now, we're staring down the barrel of the August recording. Yep. And this is an action-packed month. In terms, We have 22 papers. Yes. And Sanjay, yes, yeah, so it's action-packed. Sanjay's wearing like, you know, sort of tactical gear, looking, <laughs> looking like he's going to rappel down I'm a, ready. a mountaintop. Okay. No, but you know, there are some months when we do papers and we're like, struggle. This was like a plethora, right? This yeah. was like overflowing with goodness. In fact, some may even spill into the next we month. Did, we was, had to save was, some for so next good. month, yeah. We have a bunch of cool clinical trials. There's uh, stuff about uh, neonates. There's stuff about the. Is there any COVID this month? Yeah, I have a couple of COVID papers. One that I think is more important than the other. It's about the fourth vaccine dose, so the booster, booster, and then you know there's a, there's a few other things like that. I have a novel anticoagulant study that's come out, which is really interesting, like a new class of anticoagulants. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, I've got a few goes. papers on uh, intubating. Always stressful. I've got. One paper on procedural sedation that uses a drug I've, I've never even heard of doing before. I, this was a good month for me. I learned a lot. Right. I think everybody's going to learn Hopefully a lot. we can translate that to other people. Yeah, and then after we do our 22 papers, they'll be in the capable hands of Jess and Jenny to do their ultra summary. Right, and then there'll be a little triple T ALN. It's Can, forest plots this Forest month. plots, which is, you know, how you divide up a forest. No, I thought, I thought it was related to Forrest Gump. It's not, it's not no, the no, same no. thing. It's, no, well, that, that too. <laughs> it's also about that. It's actually the whole thing is about the many definitions of Forrest plots. And then you plot them all out. <laughs> plot them all out. Yep, you plot right. them all out in terms of level of interest. That's right. Yes, exactly. Uh, spoiler alert, the statistical one <laughs> is on the far left side of the, of the, the plot. Forrest Gump, definitely far <laughs> on the right. Excellent. Okay. Well, I'm excited. I think August is going to be a good month. Stick around because we have 22 and not 20 this month because they wouldn't stop coming. We couldn't pack it in 20. So get ready. Buckle your seatbelts. Here we 
Go. Pay for chase. Abstract number one. Nasal high flow therapy during neonatal endotracheal intubation. This is by Hodgson et al. from the New England Journal of Medicine. Editor's commentary. In this very well-conducted randomized control trial from Australia, the authors showed that nasal high-flow therapy resulted in improved success rates and physiologic stability when intubating neonates with a number needed to treat of six. It blows my mind that these authors from Australia were able to get this study done and provide useful data on a patient population that has very little existing data around them and in which we have massive room for procedural improvement. This is a highly impactful New England Journal of Medicine paper. This one can and will make a difference. So you're not starting light here. No, this is like a randomized control trial. endotracheal intubation. Yep. New England Journal. Okay. This, this is something that, you know, I, I never thought we'd see something like this. Wait till we get into the paper, and you'll see why it's in New England Journal of Medicine. Oh, you had me at hello, you know. Intubating neonates, definitely a high-stress situation in the ED, likely largely due to the fact that it's very uncommon to have to do this. They're talking about neonate neonates here, and that it's becoming even less common in the era of having more accessible, non-invasive respiratory support. So we don't often need to intubate a baby that has just been born. First attempt success rates when this procedure is performed are around 25 to 50%. So less than half the time, you're going to miss this tube on the first pass. Neonates are- Less than half the time, you're going to get it. Correct. Sorry. Neonates are at high risk of decompensation, clinical decompensation during intubation due to a lower functional residual capacity and a much higher metabolic demand. Now, nasal high-flow oxygen therapy use really has exploded since the COVID pandemic And several papers have suggested it might benefit not in just preventing the need for intubation, but actually have use during an intubation to prolong the time to desaturation during RSI-induced apnea. The authors in this study, this is really cool, conduct a randomized control trial at two NICUs in Melbourne, Australia, where infants undergoing endotracheal intubation were randomized to high-flow therapy or usual care prior to the first attempt. Excluded patients who are unstable, those who had an anatomic contraindication to high flow who basically just couldn't get it, and those who were getting a nasal intubation for whatever reason. They stratified by trial center and by age. And when Mike and I saw this paper in the picking, we saw the number like 28 weeks was in there and stuff. I thought it was a 28-week-old baby. It's 28-week gestational age. So these are real neonate yep. neonates and used by a they pre-medication. They are pre-neonates. That's right. All intubations were recorded with a GoPro camera so that they could collect and confirm all the data that was documented in the medical record. And then they report on 251 intubations performed among 202 infants in their intent-to-treat analysis. The median gestational age was just under 28 weeks. The median weight was 920 grams, and the median age since birth was 10 hours. The primary outcome of first attempt success without physiologic instability was seen in 50% of the high flow group versus 31.5% of the usual care group. 
with an NNT of 6. In a pre-planned subgroup analysis, the treatment effect was similar regardless of gestational age or use of premedication, but actually amplified when the intubation was being performed by an inexperienced operator. Other outcomes of interest. Median oxygen saturation during the first attempt was higher in the high-flow group, 93% versus 88%, and among patients who had an episode of desaturation, time to desaturation was longer in the high-flow group by about 10 seconds, 45 seconds versus 35 seconds. Number of attempts, percent of esophageal intubations, and serious adverse events did not differ between the groups. So this is a highly positive, very well-conducted trial with a clinically important improvement in intubation success and physiologic stability. Like I said, this is like, I mean, doing an RCT in adults on airway, we don't see very often. It's usually just observational data. To do it on 10-hour-old babies, I see why this got into New England Journal of Medicine. Now, one notable limitation of this trial is it was not conducted in the emergency department. 25% of the intubations were done in the delivery room, and 75% were done in the NICU. So we don't know if these numbers would hold if the study was replicated using only emergency department doctors, but still, this is a really cool trial. This is not something we do often, and I think if you have access to, you know, this like high flow situation for babies, we're starting to get it for babies. It's in the panda now. Mm -hmm. Putting it on a neonate is a really interesting, really cool idea. Mm -hmm. I have a question. Do you know, you said that the number of uh, attempts was similar. Do you know what like the average number of temp- attempts was? It was in the two range. Okay. So it was like most people didn't get it on the first try, but, but it wasn't did. like it was taking five I'm or just, six. I'm just trying to take as much out of this paper yeah, because you just see so little. I, you know, I, I, think I they, don't think I've I ever think they presented from what I remember small. medians. And I think mm-hmm. the median was two. Okay. For both groups. But yeah. You don't see this a lot. I mean, 200, you're not going to intubate 250 neonates in your entire career. Your whole hospital group probably won't. So this is really cool data worth knowing about. Abstract number two, protection by a fourth dose of BNT162B2 against Omicron in Israel. This is by Baron et al. And it's also in the New England Journal of Medicine. Editor's Commentary. This Israeli study demonstrates the protective effect of a fourth booster dose of the Pfizer vaccine in a population of people over 60 of age during the Omicron variant peak. The results show that protection from an infection is substantial but short-lived, while protection from much more rare but serious COVID infection is more sustained. But this occurs infrequently in patients with at least three vaccine doses during the Omicron phase. So, you know, despite all of our wishes, COVID persists in, you know, sort of a modified form at this point. This study examines the utility of this new fourth dose of the COVID vaccination. In this particular case, they were using the Pfizer product that was approved for patients over the age of 50 in the United States and over the age of 60 in Israel. The study, again, is out of Israel, which has been an aggressive leader in terms of both vaccinating its population and reporting out the effects of their vaccination campaign. So the point of this study, of course, is to estimate the effect of the fourth vaccination compared to three vaccinations in terms of developing symptomatic COVID and more importantly, severe COVID. And in this case, severe COVID is defined according to an NIH definition that basically says you have significant respiratory distress. So you're breathing at greater than 30 or you have an O2 sat of less than 94%. 
but it does not insist that you be admitted to the hospital or the ICU. So just so people understand what that definition is. This is a population-based study, not an RCT, and the methods are a little complicated, but actually somewhat similar to previous studies that this group has published and one study that we reviewed several months ago that was talking about the third dose. So in Israel, they began vaccinating with a fourth dose of the Pfizer product in January of 2022, just as Omicron became the dominant variant for COVID throughout the world. They enrolled patients over the age of 60, or they vaccinated patients over the age of 60. So the entire study population here is going to be over the age of 60. And to be included, they had to have three doses of the Pfizer vaccine, a minimum of four months before the study started, before their vaccination started. And they compared the daily incidence of developing COVID or severe COVID among that group, that group that had had three vaccinations and got a fourth, and they compared that to the group that had three vaccinations and did not get a fourth. Okay, so it's really important. They're not comparing four doses versus nothing here. They're looking at that marginal effect. Because this is not an RCT, the authors postulated that people who chose to get the fourth dose right away, for example, might systematically differ from people who elected not to get the fourth dose, either because of their medical risk or their behavioral things or what they were doing. So they included a second control, right? So the first control is people who never got the third dose. The second control, this is a little weird, but it makes sense, is it is the rate of infection among those same people who got the fourth dose, but in the first seven days after getting the fourth dose. That makes sense. So basically they're saying, look, these are the same people, they're getting the fourth dose, but the vaccine doesn't have enough time to work within the first seven days. So they're going to look at their daily risk of getting COVID in that first week, and they're going to compare that with you know, their daily risk of getting COVID on weeks two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight afterwards. And since they're the same people, presumably they have relatively similar behaviors and biologic risk in terms of you know, cancers and things like that. Any difference can be attributable to the vaccine. It's a little bit of an awkward control, but there is no perfect control in a non-randomized control trial. So they basically create these two groups of controls to see, you know, if it holds up against both of them, then it's probably true, as opposed to leaving it lingering, using one control group, and then somebody saying, look, uh, people who systematically chose not to get the, the fourth dose are just healthier or whatever, and that's the the reason. So I kind of like it, to be honest. Did they, did they know anything about their previous COVID infections? Yes, it's like a great maybe point. people who you know, didn't get the fourth dose were like, I've had three doses and had COVID. That's I'm going to take a hard pass. That's an excellent point. And they do. And they excluded anybody who had a prior diagnosis of COVID. Now, this is administrative data from their Ministry of Health. And I, I, I don't know enough about their data systems. But it does have COVID test results. So they did think about it and they did exclude That's those right, people. I then, agree. I'm, then I'm happy. Then I, I'm listening. I agree. There's this question of, yeah, I, look, I had three doses and I had COVID. Why would I get a fourth dose? So anyway, so they excluded those ones. Ultimately, they had 1.2 million people observable in their, their data set that met their criteria. 600,000 got four doses during the study period and just about 600,000 did not get the fourth dose. But again, they had three doses. After adjustment for observable covariates like age and gender, the rate of COVID infection was 177 cases per 100,000 patient days in the four-dose group compared with 361 per 100,000 that never got the fourth dose. So it was about, you know, just about half. 
the rate of infection was similarly high for those in that one-week period. So it was like 388 per 100,000 patient days for the group that got the fourth dose, but in that little period before they actually could become immune. In terms of serious infection, the results had the same general form, but were overall down by two orders of magnitude. Okay, so that is the serious infection rate was 1.5 per 100,000 patient days in the four-dose group compared with about four in the three-dose group or four in the one-week post-vaccination group. So it was a huge drop, but that it's a really low rate, right? So finally, there's a couple of other really kind of interesting findings in this paper. One is that the reduction in the rate of any infection, of any COVID infection, was only sustained for about five or six weeks. So that difference between the fourth dose group and the three dose group, which was you know like half or something like that, actually equalized again by week six post-vaccination. So it doesn't offer long-term protection against COVID infection. However, the protection against severe infection was maintained throughout the study period which was, you know, you know, up to, I think, about three months or something like that. So, you know, that, that's kind of interesting. Ultimately, this is telling us that the fourth vaccine seems to work quite well, in fact, particularly for reducing serious infection. And despite this study being stacked a little against it, I think, because, you know, it's comparing people who are like eager to get that fourth dose, which probably are people that are a little more, you know, worried about their health and things like, like that they might have a complication. So I think that sort of stacks against it still looks pretty good. Yeah. Or worried that they're high risk for another reason, like they work in right. the ER. Yes. <laughs> so they're right. exposed Anything. to COVID all right. the time. So you would, right. Again, exactly. stacking the deck against them. Exactly. Either way, I think the people who are chomping at the bit to get that fourth dose were at high risk for acquiring COVID and or serious COVID. The other point that this shows is that, you know, conditional on getting Omicron, so if you get Omicron, because that's what the variant was here, the risk of serious infection is really small, right? So they had, you know, about 177 patient, you know, infections per 100,000 patient days. The risk of serious infection was only 1.5, right? So less than 1%, which is very different. And again, these are all people over 60. So these are, this is a high risk group. Typically, we think of the ancestral variants is having a rate of serious infection more like 8%, 10%, something like that. So it does show, at least in a group that was vaccinated with at least three vaccines or three doses, that the overall risk of developing serious infection is way lower in Omicron. And then, of course, the fourth dose further reduces it, at least throughout this several-month study period. This paper doesn't address any potential downsides to vaccinations, such as risks associated with myocarditis or anything like that. If there are any, they just don't have that data and they don't present it. So um, again, you know, this is what it is. I think this is coming up. You know, a lot of us are either close to 50 or over 50 and are making this decision. And this is the first real world data that gives us some estimates of what protection might look like in that fourth dose. Clinical practice. Abstract number three, video laryngoscope screen visualization and tracheal intubation performance, a video-based study in a pediatric ED, this is by Dean et al. from Annals of Emergency Medicine. Editor's commentary. In this observational study of pediatric airway attempts with VL, the authors observed a massive variation in use of the screen at all, time spent looking at the screen, 
and number of gaze switches during each attempt. It's hard to prove causation, but if you find yourself switching back and forth every second between the screen and the patient, this should alert you that something is going wrong. The paper sets up the stage for a much more detailed definition of correct VL use and suggests this may be an area in which we need a best practice guideline. So another little kid intubation paper. VL use is becoming increasingly common in the emergency department, and while glottic visualization is clearly improved, data regarding changes in first-pass success rate are a little bit more contradictory. The authors of this paper suggest that some of the confusion about these conflicting results in different papers might be due to the fact that there's no standard definition of what using a VL with a standard geometry blade actually means, right? And I like this is a concept that had never really popped into my head before, but I guess it's true because if you're using, you know, a VL with a standard geometry blade, you don't have to look at the screen at all, right? right? You could just be looking directly at the patient the whole time, or you could be looking at the screen the whole time, not how you're supposed to do it, but you could be doing it that way, or one of a million variations somewhere in between. So I thought even that was sort of interesting. What does using a VL mean? It's never really been defined. To shed some light on the topic, they conduct a prospective observational study of patients undergoing tracheal intubation in a PEDS ED in Cincinnati with a goal of describing the amount of time spent viewing the screen during an attempt and whether or not the number of gaze switches, so going from the patient to the screen back to the patient, had any kind of an impact or was associated with procedural success. All intubations at this particular site occur in a dedicated resuscitation area with video cameras and microphones that provide footage from four different viewpoints, like a bird's eye view, a patient level view, and they collected the majority of their data via structured video review from the first attempt only for each patient, which they defined as one blade insertion regardless of tube delivery attempts. So that's kind of a little more standard first pass definition. They have a final sample of 153 intubations, median age, 45 months, and the first pass success rate was just under 80%. That's pretty good. Yeah, not bad. The proceduralist looked at the screen at least once in 80% of cases. So that means 20% of the time, they just used it like a regular blade, right? They never even looked at the screen. The screen was off. It may well have been. So 80% of the time, they did use it on some level. And the first look, the first time they looked at the screen, occurred much more commonly with blade insertion than it did with tube delivery, which kind of surprised me a little bit. But that's first look. First look. Yeah, first look. So if you were looking at it more or less the whole time, then... Then That's true. Then it would count as just the blade insertion. I'm just trying to picture it because it does seem odd. That seems odd to me. It's 80% versus 20% too, so it's a big difference. Yeah. The median duration of the attempt was 26 seconds, of which 10.5 seconds on average was spent looking at the screen. The median number of gaze switches. What do you think about that? How many times do you think people are looking back and forth? I'm trying to picture it. Did 26 seconds. I'm going to say four. Six. Yeah, with an interquartile range there of one to six. And about... At least I was within the interquartile range. Absolutely. I'm happy about that. And about 10% had 10 or more gaze switches. That sounds bad. That sounds like if, you're lo- if you have to do it 10 times, I bet that there's a higher relationship with the failure then. 
So the maximum number of gaze switches... 600. 842. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Face. The maximum number of gaze switches was 22. As Mike guessed, there were significantly fewer gaze switches in successful attempts compared with unsuccessful attempts. For each, they give some values here for whatever they're worth. Each additional gaze switch after the first one attempt success rate decreased by 20%. So an odds ratio of failure, 0.8. So don't gaze switch is what you're saying. Well, it's hard to say. <laughs> no, right? obviously. What it's they do is they actually give lots of really interesting exploratory data looking in great detail. They sort of generate these, what they're calling like VL phenotypes. You're kind of like a low switcher or high switcher. Mm. You know, the kind of thing, hey, people use the VL differently. You know, right. like there's never been taught exactly how many times to look back and forth. I've never really heard that before. So they sort of talk about that and say, this could use a little more study to see if this kind of thing, yeah. your phenotype really has any, you know, any predictive ability on the success rate. But the real question that arises from their findings is, what is driving the relationship between gaze right. switching and decreased success, right? Is it? that people with poor or non-purposeful technique do it poorly? Or is it that difficult airways create a panic and you're just like looking back and forth, you can't get the tube? Or is gaze switching actually the cause of the failure? And then we can actually focus on setting a more standardized approach, the best practice for doing a VL, or is it something else entirely? It's a great, those are great questions. Honestly, they are, because I could see any or all of them being true. You know, the, yes, if you're a switcher and you're looking back and forth, that could interfere with both techniques because they are slightly different. And what you're trying to achieve is slightly different when you're doing that. And I could easily see an intervention being you spend 30 seconds looking. And if you don't get it, then you switch to the TV and try it that way. But I could see the other ones equally too, where you're having great difficulty because it's a difficult airway and you're looking back and forth, hitting the side of the TV trying to make up the image get clearer, all of that stuff. So. Yeah, in all the papers we've reviewed on VL, of which there's a lot, and there's so much interest, I think, out there with you know physicians practicing yeah. in the community. Am I supposed to do this or not? I've never seen such a granular look at VL. You know, so I think this is really interesting. But you know, whatever observations they have, like Mike said, are going to need prospective study before we decide if there really is a role for like a best practice way to use the, this is the best way to do it. First you look, then you look back and you do one gaze switch. Although they didn't use the word switcher in the paper. You switcher. Used. I love it. <laughs> Are you a switcher? Are you not a switcher? Are you a switcher or a stayer? What is it? What is it? A gazer or a switcher? I don't know. Yeah, we got to think of the the, yeah. co- the counterfactual. We can, we can get this right now and then, you know, you can patent it. And patent it, be trademark f- it. Be fit. You get like 30, 45 cents. Before you How about die. sticker? Sticker or Stick switcher? Sticker or switcher is not bad. Send in your thoughts. People will take credit for them. <laughs> Abstract number four, safety of the oral factor 11A inhibitor asyndexian compared with apixaban in patients with atrial fibrillation, Pacific AF, a multisantra randomized with an S, double blind, double dummy, dose finding phase two study, in the Lancet by Dr. Piccini et al. Editor's commentary. This is the first data published regarding the novel DOAC asyndexian demonstrating it has similar or more favorable bleeding profile than apixaban. Its efficacy in terms of preventing stroke for AFib is not proven and it's not yet FDA approved. Stay tuned in the coming months to see if that changes. Can I just say 
even based on the title, there's so much to talk about here. <laughs> oh, we're getting up. Du- first of all, first du- of all, double uh, dummy. Yeah. That's whenever there's a double du- dummy double trial. Obviously, that's of us. for us. Yeah. It gets included. Yes. Yeah. Multisantra randomized with an S. You got to love that. And then they took it to 11. Uh, they took it to 11. Right. <laughs> so, but yes. this one goes to 11. Right. Because you're like 10A, factor 10A. That's it. That's like it. But this one goes to 11. And for those of you who know the reference to Spinal Tap, the, this is Spinal Tap, you must watch This is Spinal Tap. And for those of you who do not know the reference, you must watch This yeah. is Spinal Tap. You're missing out. You're yeah. missing out completely because this one, but this one goes to 11. <laughs> epic. One of the great lines in movie history. Okay. Okay. So just when you got used to factor 10A inhibitors, someone comes up with a factor 11A inhibitor. Thanks, Bayer. This thing is called Asindexian. Okay. And see what they did there? Asindexian. It's X I A N. Yes. Oh, because all the factor 10A inhibitors right, have Zabans. X-A yeah. In, yeah. The, in the name of yeah. them. So this one's X I A N. Asindexian. So they put the, the, so nice. These guys weren't fooling around. They, they, they thought they were onto something because they invested. You know, you know how they sat around for a long time thinking about, and this is, you know, this, this drug name. And they're like, yeah, this is our boy right here. And that's the generic name. Yeah. So they've really. Because I remember, you know, when Mike and I were doing paper selection this month. Again, this was just a really good month. Yeah. You know, we paused on this one for a second. We're like, wait a minute. Is that a typo or is this a factor 11A inhibitor? And it is. Yeah. So in the intro, the authors state that factor 11A has a specific role in clot propagation. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. That makes sense. But apparently, it has a very limited role in clot consolidation during hemostasis such that people with genetic factor 11 deficiency rarely bleed, okay? So if you don't have this stuff, you don't bleed, but you don't propagate clots. Don't bleed ever? <laughs> Never. They have, yeah, that's right. So you see where they're going with this. Poisoning factor 11A should therefore stop clot propagation without inducing bleeding, or at least as much, making it potentially a better choice than factor 10A inhibitors. Also. This drug is dosed daily and has relatively little renal elimination, which may make it attractive for patients with chronic renal insufficiency, which has been a, a problem with some of the factor 10A drugs. Recently, the FDA gave Bayer a fast track status for this drug, meaning that it is barreling towards approval, but it's not yet approved. This is a report of the Pacific AF trial, which is a part that we haven't even talked about. There was yeah. so much in the title. That's right. This is both, you know, sort of hysterical and absurd, right? This title. It's hysterical because they added the AF at the end, which is like just a, you know, just if very you're not a well done. Just go look it up. <laughs> just, just epically well done. Okay. However, it's absurd because it has, like, you can't figure out how Pacific is in this trial. Oh, how title. the acronym, it, it, what this, fits They into are that going acronym. to a whole new level of it doesn't correlate. So it, first of all, they don't even say in the paper anywhere, anywhere in the paper, they don't lay out like why it's called. They, they go like, we did this trial, Pacific AF. They don't they describe it. So I looked, I looked online to clinicaltrials.gov to see what the parent studies were called and all this stuff. And this is what they're called. Study to gather information about the proper dosing of oral factor 10A inhibitor Bay 2422222344 and to compare the safety of the study drug to apixaban, a non-vitamin K oral anticoagulant, NOAC, in patients with irregular heartbeat, parentheses, AFib, 
that can lead to heart-related complications. Parentheses, Pacific AF. Okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, they have 700 letters in there, so you could theoretically get to Pacific AF, but you really have to try. So, you know, that's absurd. Anyway, this is a phase two study, which is about safety and dose finding, not necessarily clinical outcomes. The phase three trial is ongoing. And really, honestly, this is a well-done multi-center, multinational study, as one might expect with a big pharmaceutical company. Patients with atrial fibrillation with higher risk of stroke were enrolled and randomized to one of two doses of the study drug or apixaban. The primary outcome was major bleeding over 12 weeks. Remember, this is the safety phase of this trial, not necessarily the clinical outcome phase of the trial. Thrombotic endpoints were not, quote, formally analyzed, whatever that means, but they were explored. I mean, that's what, how they describe it. It's a little weird. Ultimately, it ends up being not an enormous study. 862 total patients were enrolled. Mean age was 73, mostly men, mostly with paroxysmal AFib. Two major bleeding events happened in the low-dose asyndexian arm, one in the high-dose, and six in the apixaban arm. This was not statistically significant, but at least it didn't show that the asyndexian was bleeding at a higher rate in apixaban. And for what it's worth, we've covered a couple of papers recently suggesting that there might be some differences in bleeding rates between the different factor 10A inhibitors, and apixaban is the one with the lowest bleeding rate, whereas rivaroxaban has, in real-world data, had a little bit higher bleeding rate. Minor bleeding followed the same general pattern that is not statistically significant, but maybe a little hint that asyndexian doesn't have quite as much as the 10A inhibitors. Despite saying they would not formally analyze thrombotic events, the authors do put a table in showing that there were only a few stroke or MIs and no obvious pattern favoring one agent or the other. But I don't think we can attribute very much to that. The numbers are very small. The follow-up period was only 12 weeks. And that's it. That's the study. I include it because this appears to be a new agent coming with perhaps a lower bleeding profile than apixaban. And it's coming fast. I read some new reports. They're releasing new data supporting its use almost on a, you know, every few weeks um, data. Of note, the phase three trials that are looking at this agent are not just looking at patients with AFib. They're also looking at patients with a history of acute myocardial infarction. So instead of sort of like instead of aspirin or Plavix or whatever people might get post-MI, they might be, they're looking at putting them on this stuff. So it really might change the pool of people quite dramatically and expand the market for these sort of anticoagulants. There's nothing for us to do for now, just to be aware, but I thought it was kind of interesting. And you know, part of our job here is to keep you guys updated on stuff that's coming down the pipe, and I think this might be one of them. Abstract number five, subdissociative dose ketamine with haloperidol versus fentanyl on pain reduction in patients with acute pain in the ED, a randomized clinical trial. This is by Maradi et al. from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Editor's commentary. These authors from Iran deserve kudos for conducting a rigorous and well-done trial on acute pain in the emergency department. They found that a combination of ketamine and haldol outperformed fentanyl as an analgesic at all measured time points and that adding Haldol was a safe adjunct. And while it may theoretically blunt agitation and emergence, there was no comparator to assess its true value in this regard. I had never heard of using Haldol with ketamine, but I think I might try it. 
and build some personal experience while I wait for more data. So pain is a common presenting situation in the ED, and researchers and clinicians alike have been looking, looking, looking for safe and effective alternatives to using opioids for moderate to severe pain. Low-dose or sub-dissociative dose ketamine for analgesia has a growing evidence base around it, particularly for certain subsets of ED patients, with the most studied one and probably the most used clinically being patients with trauma, multi-system trauma. Although rare at low doses, the risk of developing agitation is still too high for many clinicians to accept and may, the authors say, may play a role in its current very limited level of adoption, right? It's like, okay, why risk it? Why risk an emergency reaction? The authors here are kind of saying, well, maybe you could give it with something. And what I had never heard of before was they're saying, maybe you can give it with Haldol. You ever heard of that? No. Giving with, ketamine with Haldol? Most of the studies that we reviewed, this was quite popular, I don't know, maybe what, 10 years ago when people were using a lot of benzos as a pre-medication. And then we were finding that it just knocked people out for so long that it wasn't worth doing and you should reserve them for when the, if they have an emergent yeah, reaction. Yeah, because I read this title, I was like, huh? And then I'm yeah. like, Wait, that kind of makes sense, actually. Yeah. That, that's, that is not the worst idea I've ever heard. So this is, you know, I'm actually surprised we didn't see this one in annals. This is a non-inferiority, double-blind, randomized control trial from Iran where adult patients with acute to moderate to severe pain in the emergency department were randomized to receive either Haldol 2.5 mg IV plus 0.3 mg per kg of ketamine IV, so that's a sub-dissociative dose plus Haldol, or just fentanyl, fentanyl at one mic per kilogram IV. They excluded patients with a contraindication to any of these agents. They enrolled 200 patients, 100 in each group, with no loss to follow-up cases. They had full data on all 100 from each group. 70% male, mean age 40 years, and mean pain scores were about 8.5. Half of the patients-ish, a little under that, had orthopedic trauma. Pain scores improved in both groups at 5, 10, 15, and 30 minutes. But the ketamine-haldol group did better at all time points, right? They plot out the two graphs, the mean pain scores, and they split immediately, and they stay split. For example, at the 5-minute mark, the mean pain score in the Haldol low-dose ketamine group was 2.3 versus 5.5 in the fentanyl group. And they just stay at that split. They also asked people when you had no pain, right? When did you get to the no pain mark? And again, they graph all this stuff out. But at the five-minute mark, 54% of the patients in the Haldol low-dose ketamine group said they had no pain versus 6% in the fentanyl group. I'm kind of surprised that people who got that much ketamine and Haldol could answer the question, to be honest, but okay. Well, it's low-dose ketamine. It's a fair amount of Haldol still. 2.5? You know, I mean, is well, it? if you're in severe pain to begin with, you know. I know, I'm just saying, it's, a fair, it's, not, it's not a trivial dose of Haldol, like, you know. I, I, I agree with that. But it is what we're used to giving for, you know, like a cannabinoid hyperemesis and other things. When we're giving kind of a lower dose Haldol, it's at this I'm just saying mixed mark. with ketamine, you know, it's like I'm, I'm a enough. little surprised they weren't. But, you know, they were. They were able to answer. So you know. They asked a lot of stuff. Patient reported satisfaction much higher in the ketamine Haldol group. The need for rescue analgesics lower in the ketamine Haldol group, 9% versus 34%. The mean agitation score 
did not differ between the two groups, except for one point, the 10-minute mark where they used that Richmond agitation the scale, the RAS, whatever, was a little bit higher in the ketamine how dog group. Otherwise, it was pretty low in both groups and kind of stayed low. The methods are relatively well described, and the trial was registered prior to initiation. The main limitations on this study are the non-consecutive enrollment strategy and a problem with all these ketamine studies, which is a possibility of a failure of blinding, right? Because they get a little bit in a stagmas, act a little bit goofy. Some of these things are subjective and possibly could be swayed by the people asking questions. But in my mind, this thing adds a couple of things to sort of the literature and the EMA database on the topic. The first being that ketamine does work to control acute pain. In this particular case, it outperformed fentanyl at pretty much every time point. The second thing is that we introduced this concept of Haldol being able to possibly blunt emergency reactions. Now, the truth is, we don't know if it did anything here because there was no comparator group, a control arm that just got ketamine. Right. right? And, so, and LDK or low-dose ketamine is not thought to cause a lot of emergence reactions because you shouldn't be emerging from anything because you didn't get dissociated. I agree. But for me, this just opens a bunch. Yeah. It's a well-done study. Very well what, done. What about time? How, how long were they, you know, were they able, before they were able to like split or whatever? Yeah, they don't, they don't provide much data past that 30-minute mark. And they're, they're just doing pain data. They're just doing pain scores. Because that would be my concern in this is like, you know, okay, great. Their pain's better. And now your fracture is, your wound is sewn or your whatever. Yeah, and then they feel, can't get up for I three hours. I feel like hours. I remember seeing it in sort of a table three situation or supplementary table. And it didn't notably look any different than the other group. But even just the concept of using, because there are, I know there are providers out there who are like exactly what you said. I don't want to use ketamine in any dose. I'm just nervous about this emergency reaction, even for procedural sedation. You know, and this benzo thing turned out to be kind of a fail. Yeah. I'm like, use a little bit of Haldol? That's very interesting mm -hmm. to me. I'm looking forward to reading more about this. I'd never, ever heard of it before. So good job, authors, for getting this study done. And for the, re for the record, for the record, with the author list, the first author is Maradi, first initials MM. The second author is Maradi, initials MM. That's a challenge. That's a so challenge. Now, if that's a typo and you know, PubMed got it wrong, uh, you know, I apologize to the Maradis. If not, guys, come on. You got, we, or, or, or ladies, you guys, somebody's got to change this up because I don't know who's who now. You know, I, I don't know if we've ever talked about this on the program, and this may not be the moment. We actually maybe could do it next month in the introduction. When there's a really good paper that yeah. Mike and I come across that we're kind of like kudos to these people for getting mm -hmm. it done, we actually send them like a golden coin, like yeah, from from us, from EMA, from, yeah, from Dr. MRAP. Herbert yeah. and ourselves and MRAP or whatever. Maybe we can talk about that. It's kind of an interesting thing we started doing. Doctors, oh, doctors, Moradi, get ready get for your ready. golden coin. Yeah. yeah, if you get a strange looking envelope that it feels like it has something in it, you That's know, a golden coin. That's yeah. from open us. that open thing it. up. Yep. Quick take. Abstract number six, this is a quick take, and it's titled, Pyrexia in a Young Infant. Is height of fever associated with serious bacterial infection? Question mark. Does height matter? By Dr. Victoria et al., and this is in BMC Pediatrics. Editor's commentary. Among febrile infants less than 90 days, height of fever does not correlate strongly with the probability of serious bacterial infection, even in a cohort of higher-risk children. 
So we included this paper largely to be fair, right? Because just a couple of months ago, we looked at a paper in adults that asked the question of, does height of fever matter? And it was in adult patients. And so this one, it's, it's only fair to do the same thing for pediatrics. Now, unlike the adult paper in which the authors correlated the height of fever with mortality, here the authors correlate fever height with the probability of serious bacterial infection defined sort of commonly as urinary tract infection, meningitis, or bacteremia. This is actually a pretty large study from a huge pediatric emergency department in Singapore. They enrolled kids less than or equal to 90 days, so these are febrile infants, who had ED temperatures above 37.5 and who were subsequently admitted to the hospital and had a workup for fever. So this isn't just any kid with like a borderline temperature. It's kids that they were worried about and they admitted them and they admitted them and did a whole fever workup. A lot of kids were excluded because they were not hospitalized or if they were hospitalized, they didn't get a full fever workup. They were hospitalized for some other reason, et cetera. So the final enrolled cohort was 1,057 kids. And it represents, in my estimation, a group that's substantially sicker than your sort of -of run-of-the-mill kid, because again, they were admitted. In this group, in this 1,000 kids with fever, the proportion of those with serious bacterial infections when they had a temperature of less than 38, so sort of that 37.5 to 38, was 13%. It was 20% for those infants that had a temperature of 38 to 39. It was 28% for infants that had a temperature between 39 degrees and 40 degrees Celsius, and 25% for infants with a temperature greater than 40 degrees Celsius. Actually, relatively few kids actually fell into that category. But essentially, you know, it was 13, 20, 28, 25, pretty flat. I mean, basically no significant relationship. And that's it. There's a ton of analysis in this paper. And frankly, a lot of it's like very difficult to follow. And I don't think, you know, particularly insightful. I've mostly found it extraneous. But I think the core message here is, you know, unlike sort of what we observed with the adults, height of fever does not seem to correlate very strongly at all for infants less than 90 days with fever. Who you are admitting to the hospital, you'd think is. So there is that little caveat, right? So the ones you're being admitted, I'm just trying to figure out how do I like use this because it can't tell me who to admit. No, I think right? you just so, use it as like, don't get riled up. I mean, if the temp is if the 39.5, temper is 39.5, I mean, don't blow it off, but don't get riled up about it. It is relatively equivalent to whether they were 38.1 or 2. So I guess that would be the way to use it is to recognize that low-grade pyrexia in a child that, you know, for whatever reason you're admitting, you might be admitting them just for age at this, you know, they, they, these kids are less than 90 days. They might be five weeks old or whatever. But don't say, you know, this one's only 38.2. I'm going to not work him up. I think he, he would, you know, I'd otherwise, if he were 39, I would definitely work him up and do an LP and everything else. You know, in a kid that's 38.1, you know, you should think that they have roughly the same risk of having a serious bacterial infection and do the same workup, regardless of the temperature. Quick take. Abstract number seven. Anakinra treatment in patients with acute Kawasaki disease with coronary artery aneurysms, a phase 1 to a trial. This is by Yang et al. from the Journal of Pediatrics. This one's also a quick take. Editor's commentary. In this phase 1 to a dose escalation study, Anakinra, 
an IL-1 receptor antagonist was found to be well-tolerated in kids that were about a year old. We need outcome data, which is coming in phase 3 trials, but there's a new medication on the block for Kawasaki disease, and now everybody listening has heard of it. So Kawasaki disease is a vasculitis seen in kids, and as a reminder, the diagnosis is made largely clinically based on signs of systemic and mucocutaneous inflammation. This is like that crash and burn mnemonic, right? Conjunctivitis, rash, adenopathy, largely cervical, strawberry tongue, hand, feet changes, and the burn, which is the fever. The most feared complication of the disease is a coronary artery aneurysm, but the incidence of this has decreased dramatically after widespread adoption of IVIG as first-line therapy. However, it is noted that IVIG is less effective in children who are less than six months old. Anakinra is a recombinant human interleukin IL-1 receptor antagonist that is FDA-approved for patients with moderate to severe rheumatoid arthritis and Stills disease, among other indications, that has been tested more recently in animal models and in 16 patients with IVIG-resistant Kawasaki disease. This was their phase 2 trial for its ability to prevent and treat cardiovascular lesions. So this trial is a phase 1 2A dose escalation study of anakinra in addition to IVIG and immunotherapeutic agent infixumab among 22 patients with acute Kawasaki disease and coronary artery aneurysms. Basically, they gave up to six weeks of therapy and all measured inflammatory markers decreased over the study period with no significant adverse events or toxicities observed at any of the treatment levels that they used in this dose escalation study. They don't report on outcomes here. That isn't the purpose of this trial. And there's still no data on its use in shorter, typical hospital-length courses, because this is an IV medication. But phase three trials are underway. There's a new drug out there for Kawasaki disease. At least now, if someone mentions it, you can say you've heard about it. Abstract number eight, development of a novel emergency department quality measure to reduce very low-risk syncope hospitalizations. This is by Mark Probst et al., and it's in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Edit this commentary. This is an interesting study that shows EDs across the United States admit a small fraction of patients with syncope under the age of 50 who do not have a history of heart disease. More work will need to be performed to convincingly show that this admission rate is stable enough to serve as a quality marker in a value-based pay scheme. And just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, you got decision aids, syncope, quality metrics, now Mark Probst. <laughs> yeah, because for those of you who don't know, these things are on Mike's least favorite list, except for Mark Probst, who actually is one of his favorites. But uh, Mark... You're said, killing me, boy. You're Mark, killing me. He's, Mark is just not going to give up on this. You got to respect his, 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 his... Doggedness. On this, Stick-to-itiveness. On this thing. And the fact that knowing... Rugged Mike, determinism. With a lot of love, Mike is probably going to say something to make fun of him. He still sends us these he things, still sends it wanting in. us to cover them. Uh, well, Mike, actually, go to it. Okay. So interesting paper by a host of really smart people. Mark Probst accepted a lot of talented researchers and thinkers who keep trying to help make sense of the way we manage this symptom syncope in the ED. Several on the author list have spent years developing clinical decision aids, including the Canadian risk syncope score, or Canadian syncope risk score, I should say. 
They've done this to identify low-risk groups who should be able to be safely discharged. Others on this author list are experts in identifying low-value care and variations in these low-value care and how to pull policy levers that might reduce that. Put all these heads together and you come up with a study that seeks to define a low-risk syncope cohort and examines how often these cases are admitted and how much variation there is in that admission rate across the country. The whole point is ultimately to propose a new hospital quality measure that might be useful in sort of identifying hospitals that are engaging in low value care, et cetera. So that's a lot. And they actually, this study is really complicated. It's almost like three or four studies built into one using different data sets, et cetera. And I'll do my best to sort of make it digestible. In the first phase of the study, the authors used the Canadian syncope risk score data set to identify variables associated with very low risk syncope, not low risk, very, very low risk syncope. They look at those variables to see which ones are likely to be present in an administrative data set as opposed to a research data set. Because the Canadian syncope risk score data set has all sorts of stuff about QRS access, you know, axes of the EKG, all sorts of stuff, but that would never be present. And like your hot an administrative data set, like the stuff that comes into NEDS or the SED data set. Ultimately, they come up with two variables, only two that they think, you know, predict very low risk stuff and would be present in an administrative data set. And they are age less than 50 and history of heart disease. So in the Canadian data set, if patients were less than 50 and had no history of heart disease, they had a 0.46% risk of adverse events within 30 days. So that's very, very low risk. And they think that those variables are reliably captured in administrative data. So they think that that's our cohort of people that we think should be discharged. They then apply those two variables to NEDS, which is the National Emergency Department. Uh, I forget what those S stands for, but what the, whatever. It's a big survey of emergency departments, represents- it's probably survey. I, you know, I, for some reason, I, I really just don't think it is survey, but I, you know, whatever, I, I should have written it down. We published using NEDS and now I'm just blanking. Anyway, they use that to estimate how often people with those very low risk characteristics are admitted. And according to NEDS, there's about, when you inflate it up and, and, and weight it, there are about 500,000 ED visits in 2019 that met those very low risk criteria, of which 2.7% were admitted, seemingly unnecessarily. And, and by seemingly unnecessarily, I include that because the authors excluded admissions that had very low, you know, that had young people with no history of heart disease if they had some other diagnosis that mandated or, or suggested the need for admission, like, you know, they had a PE or something else like that. So they ended up with, the, you know, less than 3% that were admitted. There was a bit of variation in the hospital admit rate across the groups. The average was uh, about 2.5%, and the interquartile range ranged from 0% to 3.9%. So a quarter of hospitals admitted more than 3.9% of these people who met these very low-risk criteria. Large metropolitan teaching hospitals had a tendency to admit more of these types of cases than their counterparts that are smaller and you know rural or non-urban, et cetera. So then they proposed that this could be a quality measure and that closing this variation in care, this you know, range, could result in some overall cost savings and might be incorporated into a value-based payment scheme. 
Personally, I'm not so convinced. I think that in administrative data, there are tremendous amounts of coding errors and omissions that could have undercounted the presence of heart disease in some cases or undercounted an alternative reason for admission that would have made that admission necessary. The small number of observations per hospital could result in unstable estimates. So, for example, if you consider there are, there are 500,000 cases of these, you know, these low-risk things across America, but there are five th- more than 5,000 emergency departments across America, that means that on average, there's about 100 of these cases per ED per year. Imagine a place that admitted three cases, right? Three of these very low-risk cases. That would put them smack in the middle, right, of the very low-risk admission rate. Imagine now if one of those cases were miscategorized because someone forgot to put anemia on the diagnosis list or something like that, right? That would make them, you know, go up to, you know, four cases or something like that, right? And then they would be in the highest quartile risk. That's too volatile in my estimation to be really, uh, you know, a meaningful quality measure. And it would put a lot of pressure on coders. And then it would put a lot of pressure on emergency department physicians to never admit a low-risk syncope case because you know that even one could swing your hospital into the upper quartile. And we need to give our doctors some ability to say, you know what, this one just looks weird. You know, there's something about it that makes me sketched out. And we don't want to insist to the point of, you know, punishing the whole hospital for that. So I, I just don't think that that's right. I'd like to see a lot more about this measure. Like, is it stable over time? Do the same hospitals that exhibited sort of the low value admission rate in 2019, are they the same ones that did in 2018 and 2017? Or is this volatility you know, that I'm describing or this potential volatility, is it really true and the hospitals are just all over the map? The authors sort of agree with this critique, frankly, in their limitations section, where they note that the reason large metropolitan teaching hospitals may admit more cases is because they tend to see more complicated patients, right? And they may not code optimally because they're like teaching facilities and stuff like that. Well, I agree. But if that part of the finding is suspect, then the whole thing is suspect. You can't sort of, you can't have both of those things be simultaneously sort of uh, true and, and discounted in one phase and not in the other. So ultimately, you know, I'm not sure what to say. I do like the, the work in general. I like that they're using their research findings and are systematically exploring policy, potential policy levers to help deal with the problem of over-admitting patients with syncope. I'm just not convinced they've hit the nail on the head with this measure. Abstract number nine, mapping hemodynamic changes with rapid sequence induction agents in the emergency department by Freeman et al. from Emergency Medicine, Australasia. Editor's Commentary. In this multi-center airway observational study from Australia and New Zealand, the authors report a dose-dependent hypotension with both ketamine and propofol use during RSI. The ketamine patients were sicker to start with, and causation cannot be confirmed due to study design, but it is worth remembering that using ketamine won't somehow magically prevent a drop in blood pressure in patients who already have limited reserve. RSI is a standard way to secure an airway in the ED. But post-intubation and really peri-intubation hypotension are real and can be significant complications. This hypotension could be affected by the agents used from RSI, and this is certainly true from a pharmacologic perspective. It does make sense 
that patients being intubated with ketamine as part of their induction strategy should have less hypotension than those being intubated with propofol, right? If we know how the drugs work, we know that that should be true. However, among patients who did not have a full tank to begin with, who are volume down or something like that for another reason, who are already maxed out on their sympathetic drive, using ketamine might not have this same protective effect or not cause a drop in blood pressure. The primary aim of this paper was to describe and compare the hemodynamic effects of propofol, ketamine, and thiopentone during RSI using data collected through the Australian and New Zealand Emergency Department Airway Registry, the ANZADAR Registry, from 43 different emergency departments. And patients were divided from a clinical perspective into three groups, those with head trauma, those with other trauma, and patients being intubated for a medical reason. Hypotension was defined as a systolic blood pressure of less than 90, and a clinically significant change in blood pressure was defined as a 20% change post-intubation in either direction, up by 20 or down by 20. Of just over 2,000 intubations, about 16% were for head trauma, 5% had other trauma, and 78% had medical indications. And the split between the three medications was almost exactly a third, a third, a third. Thiopentone, propofol, and ketamine. Overall, about 20%, 18% of patients experienced a drop in blood pressure of greater than 20% post-intubation. Not surprisingly, propofol was independently associated with a drop in blood pressure, and for every 1 mg per kg increase in dose, there was a 42% increase in the odds of developing hypotension. So more propofol caused more hypotension. That should not be incredibly surprising. Ketamine was also independently associated with a drop in blood pressure. And for every 1 mg per kg increase in dose, there was a similar 37% increase in the odds of developing hypotension. In case you were curious, those of us practicing outside of Australia and New Zealand who have never used thiopentone yep. for an intubation, it was not associated with post-intubation hypotension. Ketamine was used more often in hemodynamically unstable patients, right? So people were like, oh, blood pressure's already low. Let me use ketamine because I think it's supposed to be more protective. And propofol was used more often in the stable patients. These findings are actually in line with NEAR data yeah. on the same topic that also showed that among patients intubated for sepsis, so their denominator cohort is a little bit different, ketamine use resulted in more hypotension than automate use, but selection bias likely played a role here. The sicker patients, the hypotensive patients, they probably gave ketamine too. A major limitation to interpreting their data is that due to the observational design we cannot infer causation. It is possible the hypotension rate would have been even higher if propofol was used in the cases that got ketamine. Maybe ketamine did do something. You know, we're thankful that the rate is the same as it was with propofol, but there's just no way to know, and this will never be fully understood without a real randomized control trial. Their observed dose-dependent hypotension for agents, I think, is a good clinical take-home point, as we should try to be safe, you know, getting the conditions right for the intubation but judicious with our dosing as much as possible, particularly in high-risk patients. But the big take-home here and the near data and everything else is if you think ketamine is going to be like fully protective against hypotension and raise everybody's blood pressure, 
in these really, really sick patients, that probably just isn't the case. Abstract number 10, the difference between patients' initial and previously measured systolic blood pressure as predictor of mortality in older emergency department patients by Candel et al. in the European Geriatric Medicine. Editor's Commentary. This is a relatively small local study examining the relationship between baseline systolic blood pressure and systolic blood pressure when elderly patients present to the ED. The net finding is that reductions in systolic blood pressure at the time of the ED visit are associated with higher mortality, even if the actual blood pressure at the time of the ED visit is normal. Much more research is required to validate this finding, but in the interim, beware of relative hypotension. I don't think we've ever covered a paper from that particular. Is it uh, the European? It, it's, it's not. It's just European so, geriatric. I finally caught you. <laughs> it's been almost four years of you making fun of me. There yeah, but we, we, yeah, you're yeah, talking about the, one of the biggest journals we have in the world, yeah, and this, this is like a thing we've never what? even covered. But it's th- geriatric exactly. medicine, even emergency so medicine. This is probably the only time this journal will ever be covered, and you, you got the name wrong. I'm never going to forget this, Benji. Right. I've been waiting patiently for you to add a the onto something. Damn it. Thank you. I should have just said, yes, it's called the Because I wouldn't have known. Yeah. No, it is European geriatric medicine. All right. All right. In ED patients with a history of hypertension, what normal blood pressure is and whether such things as, quote, relative hypotension exists is a really important question. We talk about it quite often during clinical rounds, but I've never seen a paper on it. The notion here is patient has a baseline hypertension. Every time they come to the clinic, we can observe a lot of that stuff now with EHRs. It's always 160 over 100, and today it's 120 over 80. Is that, are they sick? Right? Are they, are they hypotensive for Re- them? Are they relatively hypotensive? Exactly. It's a great question. Great question. And I don't, do you recall ever seeing an Never. article on it? Yeah. And it got relegated to European ger- geriatric medicine. Maybe not relegated. Maybe this is a great article. It's just, it feels very emergency medicine-y and it should be in our stuff, but I'm glad we were able to find it. So in this study, the authors look at blood pressure data for elderly emergency department patients that were observable in two EHRs from two sites in Holland to determine if changes in blood pressure from the baseline correlate with mortality. They included all patients over 70 who were triaged in the emergency department to a high triage category. That is, the nurse triage agent perceived them to be sick. And so they were perceived to be sick at triage and they were hospitalized. So this is not, you know, anybody who came in with a sprained ankle and anything like that. This is people who presumably their blood pressure readings and and, and whatnot would be really important into their sort of management. The study period was extremely short. It was only a two-week period in January of 2018 at these two hospitals. They ended up with 300 patients. Of those 300 elderly patients, 220 had previous systolic blood pressures observable in the EHR from times when they were apparently not sick. The authors calculated the baseline systolic blood pressure as the average of the three most recent readings prior to their emergency department visit. And then they compared that baseline reading with their blood pressure in the ED and characterized the difference as either positive, so the blood pressure in the ED was higher, neutral, 
which is essentially the same, and they gave some little ranges for that, or negative, meaning that it was lower. Finally, they demonstrate the 30-day mortality associated with these changes in systolic blood pressure stratified by whether the baseline systolic blood pressure was normal, high, or in some cases low. So even if it was like one millimeter of mercury lower, they'd be negative or did no, it have to be, it had like to be a drop more, of something? It had to be a drop of more than six millimeters of mercury for them. They don't actually explain why that is. I think when you look at the tables, they divide the SBP changes into three categories, this negative, no change, or high, and they have the same number in each group. So I think they just so they did use it by the data sort of, to define it exactly instead of defining it in advance, like yeah, twenty point drop or anything like that. But they don't actually explicitly say that in the paper. The key findings are that a negative change in systolic blood pressure, and since we said it, more than six millimeters of mercury compared with the baseline was associated with higher odds of death compared with those who had no change or an increase from baseline, and this was true even if they were normotensive in the ED. Right, so they were normotensive, but that was lower than their baseline. They had higher mortality. Quantitatively, 15 of the 71 patients who presented to the ED and were normotensive in the ED were actually relatively hypotensive compared to their baseline. And mortality in that group was 20%. Mortality was only 5% for those presenting to the ED with normotension who were not experiencing a change from their baseline. The highest mortality group probably unsurprisingly, was the group who presented to the ED with hypotension and for whom that reflected a decrease from their baseline. And the mortality in that group was 26%. There's a lot of limitations to this paper. It was really a very small study. So the stratifying by baseline blood pressure is pretty crude. you know. And I'd like to see a study focusing on people that have a history of hypertension. Not all of these people were hypertensive at baseline. And so it ends up being a little weird that if you have a person that had low blood pressure at baseline and then their blood pressure dropped, they're actually like frankly hypotensive. Obviously, their mortality is going to be high. We're really interested in that group that has baseline hypertension and now comes in normotensive. And that's just a limitation of they tried to do a study over a two-week period instead of like maybe expanding it out, which I think would have been more useful. Ultimately, though, I still find it kind of interesting. Certainly, it's stimulating you know, my interest in this topic. And they do find this thing that people who had a prior history of you know, a little bit of hypertension that come in normotensive have higher mortality. So there's a little nugget in there that validates that, that notion that relative hypotension exists, though the, you know, how important it is still needs to be worked out because this paper is just a little too small and not generalizable enough to take to the bedside, really. Abstract number 11. Dynamic use of fibrinogen under viscoelastic assessment results in reduced need for plasma and diminished overall transfusion requirements in severe trauma. This is by Barquero Lopez et al. from the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. Editor's commentary. In this single-center observational study, the authors observed that switching from a classic massive transfusion one-to-one-to-one resuscitation strategy in trauma patients to a visco-hemostatic assay strategy and then removing FFP from their protocol saved blood products but did not impact mortality. It's clear at this point that giving everyone a full 10 units of blood with MTP up front is not right. 
and some checkpoints are needed to stop and reevaluate the patient in front of you, that this paper does not convince me that it's the use of these point-of-care assays that were actually responsible and not some other time-related change in management of patients. Despite advances in many aspects of trauma management over the last decade or two, half of trauma deaths are still due to bleeding. And when giving large amounts of blood products, patients are at risk for developing trauma-induced coagulopathy, and preventing this was one of the major drivers behind the introduction of this one-to-one-to-one massive transfusion resuscitation protocol. This is a one-size-fits-all approach. But some have argued that the availability of these rapid viscoelastic hemostatic assays might allow for a more personalized approach and thus save some blood products. Although small observational studies and meta-analyses on the topic have been mixed, the most well-publicized trial to date was the ITACTIC trial, which we covered on the EMA program last year, I think. This was a multinational randomized control trial in which the authors did not find a clinical benefit of using these point-of-care viscoelastic hemostatic assays, TEG and Rotom, over the traditional lab-based conventional coagulation tests in terms of patients being at risk of requiring massive transfusion. Here, the authors describe their experience during kind of a stepwise implementation of Rotom, where they're working, and new treatment protocols and guidelines, and then basically saying how these things impacted blood products used and outcomes of patients. So this is a retrospective review of adult trauma patients who received the equivalent of what seemed like sort of a trauma team activation, you know, like sick patient for whatever reason, based on vitals, injury severity, something like that, between 2008 and 2019. They excluded patients on anticoagulants and then excluded patients that died immediately in less than an hour where the massive transfusion or the transfusion of the blood products had no chance to work. In 2008, they started their massive transfusion protocol. So when this study started, the one-to-one-to-one. Then in 2011, they got point-of-care Rotom and they developed an individual patient-level algorithm where you're supposed to check this thing and then make decisions based on that. And their algorithm included, you know, based on some results of the Rotom, FFP and fibrinogen. So prior to that, as you know, one-to-one-to-one does not include any fibrinogen. And then at some point, they changed the protocol. They don't really say why that happened or what happened. They say like, oh, there was some data saying Plasma doesn't have that much benefit or something. So basically, they changed the protocol to then just giving fibrinogen if you had that certain value on the Rotom. So basically, what they did was they sort of then set up three different groups separated by time, if that makes sense. Overall, they report on not a ton of patients, considering this is like a 12-year sample, 135 patients. Hmm. 28 of whom were seen in the plasma-only time period. That's the one-to-one-to-one time period. That's pre-2008. No, that's 2008 to Uh, 2011. 2011, sorry, yeah. 64 were seen in the time period where the protocol said give fibrinogen and plasma in response to a certain rotum value. And 42 were seen in the time period where it said, nope, we're just giving fibrinogen with that same rotum result. Looking at the three groups, at least to me, there was no obvious difference in mechanism of injury 
injury severity as measured by the ISS or initial hemodynamic status. They report less PRBC use among the fibrinogen patients. Nine units of PRBCs were given in that plasma period on average, 10 units in the plasma plus fibrinogen period, and six units in the fibrinogen only period on average. Other outcomes, including pneumonia rates, overall platelet use, bunch of things all better in that last time period, the fibrinogen only time period. Mortality was similar across the group. So that's kind of what ITACTIC was looking at as well. These people dying or not, you know, and they looked at dying without needing massive transfusion in ITACTIC, but mortality was similar. They don't report on length of stay in this paper. There's a few outcomes that are just sort of not there for some reason. So basically, they kind of conclude that switching from a mandatory one-to-one-to-one massive transfusion protocol to a viscohemostatic assay guided algorithm save blood products of all types without impacting mortality. The big issue with this paper is that a lot of stuff has changed in trauma management over the last decade, including the use of TXA. And they do give that deep in the paper. TXA use was 0% in that first time period. It went up to about a third of the patients in the the middle time period where they were giving both agents. And in the fibrinogen-only group, almost 100% of those patients also got TXA, right? Now, I'm not saying TXA saves lives. I'm more using that to illustrate a point, that things are changing over time. So it's really difficult to interpret these results because it's not a trial, right? It's like, does a patient treated in 2019 do better than a patient treated in 2008 in whatever reason, right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of things have changed in trauma management. Even where we work, it used to be upfront. You give 10 units, you give 10 units, you give the whole thing. And now we're like, let's pause after a certain number of units. Let's check. So maybe it has nothing to do with these assays or the use of fibrinogen, but just the introduction of a pause or a checkpoint. I have absolutely no idea. So I'm not including this paper because this is like world's greatest paper with the strongest methods. In fact, it's not nearly as good as an itactic paper, but it is another paper on the topic. And in the spirit of keeping this sort of very upcoming discussion about using these point-of-care assays to look at coagulation status complete. Here it is, but we definitely need more papers to figure out the real value of these things if they exist. Abstract number 12, usefulness of contrast-enhanced multi-detector CT scan in identifying upper GI bleeding, a retrospective study of patients admitted to the emergency department by Kim et al. And this is in the Plus One Public Library of Science 1. Editor's commentary. This single-site retrospective study clearly showed that multi-detector CT cannot reliably identify the presence of ongoing or recent bleeding in patients with suspected upper GI bleeding and does not appear to have a role in the routine management of such patients. This is another article on a great topic. I just, you know, don't love the article. But still, It's what is the role of multi-detector CT scanning for patients with suspected upper GI bleed? The major point is that when patients present with symptoms of upper GI bleed, there are at least a few things that we need to know in the emergency department. Probably most important is, is the bleeding ongoing, right? Because if the bleeding's ongoing, whatever lesion is in there spurting out blood might require some form of really emergent angio-based or endoscopically-based or surgically-based therapy. If it's not bleeding, 
then it can presumably wait till tomorrow or whatever when people get around to doing it. The other important questions are probably like sort of where is it bleeding or where is the thing that bled and potentially what is it, right? Because that would impact like the strategy to control the bleeding and potentially any other things if it was obvious it was a tumor or something like that. Typically, this is done through endoscopy, but endoscopy requires a lot of personnel and equipment that make it harder to organize and not available very quickly or off hours. So could multi-detector CT play a role in risk stratifying cases such that you could scan the person with contrast, identify if there was ongoing bleeding, and maybe then rush in your GIT only if there was ongoing bleeding? You know, after all, the, the scanner is at most places available 24-7. Anecdotally, I have seen a lot more ordering of CT scans for upper GI bleeds. But there's been you know, extremely little data evaluating the utility of this practice. So these authors look at their single-site experience with multi-detector CT in GI bleeding to determine how accurate it is, and most importantly, identifying active and or recent bleeding in the upper GI tract. They included patients who had a contrast-enhanced multi-detector CT and an upper endoscopy within 24 hours. The endoscopy served as the gold standard as to whether bleeding was occurring, or had occurred. The decision to order a CT scan was completely at the discretion of the emergency department physician and or the GI doctor. There was no systematic, we did this on everybody. So they're looking at a, you know, I, they don't even give the numbers, but I suspect a fairly small subset of all suspected upper GI bleeds that got a CT scan in addition to their endoscopy. The radiologists were apparently blinded to the endoscopic findings when they were interpreting the CT scan, the research radiologists, that is. They do not describe any chart review methods. After some frankly strange exclusion decisions, the authors wind up with 286 patients with endoscopically confirmed GI lesions that had bled. 64 were esophageal, 165 in the stomach, and 57 were duodenal. Guess what? The multi-detector CT scan was pretty terrible. Sensitivity for active bleeding, sensitivity for active bleeding was 32%. It missed 70% of active bleeding. It was even worse for recent bleeding, which it was like 25% sensitive. And that, they, ha- they had some impressively thought. bad terrible, yeah. for a practice that I too have seen kind of yeah. on the uptick yeah. recently. Yep. Yeah. And I was like, how would you even know recent bleeding? And they said, that like, well, if there's recent bleeding, we think you can maybe see a hematoma stuck to the luminal wall. And I was like, oh yeah, you're not going to be able to see that. But I thought maybe you could see the contrast spurting. Just shooting out. Yeah, spurting in there, but they couldn't. The findings didn't improve depending on the location of the bleeding. That is, it was equally bad at identifying active bleeding from the esophagus, which maybe you would theorize like that's really important. So, you know, because that can really, really hemorrhage or the stomach or duodenum. It was all in that 30s percent range. For what it's worth, it was relatively specific, sort of in the 80 to 90%. So when they said, oh yeah, there's active bleeding, that was you know, more often true than not. It was you know, 80 or 90% specific. The authors then somewhat bizarrely lay out an algorithm that incorporates doing the multi-detector CT for patients with suspected, even with suspected upper GI bleed, even though it clearly cannot rule out active bleeding, which is probably the most important thing we would need it to do. So I'm going to ignore that algorithm. So this, frankly, it's a relatively weak single-site study that overall is probably biased towards finding good performance of multi-detector CT because there's selection for who actually got the multi-detector CT. If you thought it had no value, 
probably wouldn't order it, right? So someone must have been thinking, this might help us for some reason. And despite that, it performed dismally. Abstract number 13. Effect of intramuscular versus intraarticular glucocorticoid injection on pain among adults with knee osteoarthritis, the KISS randomized clinical trial by Wang et al. from JAMA Network Open. Editor's commentary. In this well-conducted randomized control trial, the authors did not find non-inferiority of IM compared with IA glucocorticoids at 24 weeks among patients with knee osteoarthritis, but did observe marked and similar improvements in pain and function at almost every other time point along the way. This seems like a very reasonable approach to me, and one that we might even be able to enact for analgesic refractory patients seen in the emergency department. The most commonly affected joint in osteoarthritis is the knee. And if exercise, physical therapy, weight loss, and analgesics don't work, orthopedic doctors might turn to intraarticular steroids. These do work for short-term relief and are recommended by several of their professional society guidelines. However, there are some concerns about safety, as there was one randomized trial that showed greater rates of cartilage loss. So, you know, people who are getting a lot of IA injections wear down their cartilage faster, actually, needed to go to the OR. And there's some observational data showing that although the risk of a very rare, it's higher if you get an IA injection of septic joint and post-operative infections. So I thought this was interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that we see these patients all the time in the emergency department. And second is my dad just had a total knee replacement done last month, and he had several of these IA injections before. And I kind of remember seeing some papers about like IM being equivalent. So I kind of was already thinking about this in the brain. IM steroids have the advantages, at least theoretical, of removing the aforementioned risks of septic joint. They're easier to administer. And a previous randomized control trial from the authors of this paper found that they outperform placebo injections in patients with osteoarthritis knee pain. So this trial is basically a follow-up trial. So they first wanted to say, yeah, these have some value, but now how do they work compared to what is our more standard IA injection? This is a pretty good paper. This is a multi-center, open-label, non-inferiority randomized control trial from 80 sites in the Netherlands enrolling patients with symptomatic osteoarthritis of the knee for at least three months and moderate to severe pain over the last week. So they have osteoarthritis and are now coming in for sort of a flare or an exacerbation. And they are randomized to 40 milligrams of triamcinolone IM or 40 milligrams of triamcinolone IA and then followed them out for 24 weeks. They set the non-inferiority margin at 7 on something called the Knee Injury and Osteoarthritis Outcome Score, which is a 0 to 100 score. One of those patient-reported outcome scores. Patient-reported outcome. And interestingly, what they say is a clinically meaningful difference on this scale is actually bigger than that. It's like in the double digits. So they were like a pretty conservative number. I'm not totally sure why they did that. They don't explain it. They then give per-protocol data on 138 patients, 65% of whom were women and a mean age of 67 years. Although there was a large, clinically meaningful difference in this score at pretty much all time points during the study period, and the difference between scores at the end was 3.4, so pretty tight, not too bad, 
non-inferiority could not be declared, and we see this a lot, as the lower limit of the confidence estimate exceeded their non-inferiority margin of the seven, the tight margin that they had provided at 24 weeks. Non-inferiority was observed at earlier time points, like at the eight-week point. They did see non-inferiority then. Secondary outcomes, including symptoms, function, stiffness, patient's sport level, and quality of life improved similarly in both groups over the entire 24-week follow-up period, as did oral analgesic use. Minor adverse event rates were similar between the two groups, and there were no serious adverse events in either group. So overall, this is a well-conducted trial with excellent follow-up using a clinically meaningful outcome. The main limitation here is the non-blinded design, not like they did placebo shots in the knee or in the buttock, you know, which could introduce some bias into the assessments and the outcome assessments and maybe a placebo effect. But prior studies suggest that this placebo effect would actually favor the IA group. Somebody who got something right in the knee should feel like they got something a little more special to impact their knee or something. But, you know, Let's say this is true. I mean, truthfully, you know, at maybe at the 24-week mark or 40-week mark, whatever it is, you don't expect the prednisone to be working as well, or the, you know, the steroid. But if, right. if, if the eight-week mark, it's non-inferior. For me, this means that this is something we might be able to do in the ED. Yeah. I think that's what makes this paper and, and so this, relevant. This is not crazy, right? I mean, we've seen other papers. I remember a couple that were about shoulder joints and stuff like that, where they randomized people to intramuscular versus one inch up where they actually tried to get into the joint. And I remember other papers where they looked at people who thought they were getting intraarticular, but when they did the fluoro, half the time it didn't go in and half the time it didn't, they had the exact same response in terms of, you know, the, the shoulder pain at several weeks. So this is in line with that, suggesting that IA is, is, is not better. As long as you've got a blood that circulates you know, steroids, it can circulate it into your joints. Yeah, I think that's reason. One thing that I thought was kind of funny in this paper, you know, it's like these orthopedic surgeons, it's hard to, it's hard to move, yeah, like, oh, yeah. you know, decades of practice. You this know. is a lot of what they do. They made a really big point of saying that the IM injections were on the ipsilateral buttock. You know, like that would have some value or <laughs> yeah. something. Kind of like what you were saying about yeah, the yeah. shoulder. It's like, okay, we're a couple inches off, and now we're a foot off. Yeah, yeah. How's that, that yeah. going to work for us? Yeah. And then it was just kind of funny that yeah. they did that. But I, this seems totally reasonable to me that this, I think this is going to start to make its way into the emergency so, department. So to be clear, there's practice. no real evidence. There's no evidence of superiority, right? That's right. And there's just because they chose an extremely narrow limit to their confidence limit or to their, their inferior, non-inferiority margin, that probably was At the like issue. like six months. Because most, you know? most of the time you use that sort of minimal clinical significance as the sort of That's inferior right. edge of your margin. I don't know why they made life so hard for themselves. Yeah. I think this would have been like, you know, easily demonstrated non-inferiority if they'd changed either one of those two right. things. I see. But very well done trial. Definitely, I think, highly relevant to what we can thinking about doing. Abstract number 14, intramuscular AZD7442, which is a monoclonal antibody cocktail of tixamjemimab and sigavimab for prevention of COVID-19 by Levin et al., also in the New England Journal of Medicine. Editor's commentary. This is a large, albeit awkward, trial of a long-acting antibody cocktail that showed reasonable effectiveness at reducing the risk of symptomatic COVID infection. 
Though this does have an emergency use authorization, the effectiveness of vaccines has rendered it largely moot. When COVID first hit, I had assumed that vaccines would not work right away. Just, you know, things don't usually work right away. It takes a long time yeah. normally to develop a That's vaccine right. that works. Um, and that the solution forward for us, for healthcare workers and maybe people who are at really, really high risk, would be monthly antibody injections. That's actually what I thought was going was gonna to happen. This is a strategy that's been used in other diseases. Of course, the rapid development and deployment of highly effective vaccines made this less relevant, but when this paper came up, I thought it was still worth covering. So basically, this is a cocktail of two human neutralizing antibodies, monoclonal things that were derived from people who had recovered from SARS-CoV-2. These monoclonal antibodies are then biologically engineered to extend the half-life using some proprietary stuff that AstraZeneca owns, such that a single injection produces higher antibody levels than is produced by natural recovery from SARS-CoV-2 for at least nine months, right? So that's like you stick this in somebody, compare their antibody levels to somebody who had SARS-CoV-2, and you'll find that they have higher antibody levels, the ones that got this injection. So I don't know how they do it exactly, but that's, that's neither here nor there. So that's what they made. This was a phase three trial that began way back in November of 2020. So, you know, a couple of months before, well, one month or so before the vaccines started to be rolled out. And it was completed in March of 2021. And it compared a single injection of this stuff to placebo in adult subjects who had either high risk of failing to mount immune response, right? So basically you're immunocompromised folks or people that were at very high risk for getting COVID-19 because they were either mostly healthcare workers, but there were also some other groups like meat pack workers. Remember, there were all those outbreaks in those meat plant factories, et cetera. The primary endpoint was symptomatic COVID infection, not severe infection, symptomatic COVID infection. Secondary endpoints included safety, and it was fully funded and designed by AstraZeneca. The study ended up being really messy because the FDA required everybody to be offered the opportunity to know whether they got placebo or the active treatment once the vaccines were approved for their category. So what that meant is that 99% of subjects said, I would like to know, yes, please, thank you, because I need to know whether I should get vaccinated or not. Or, you know, that would enter my calculus as to whether I get vaccinated or not. So, and then those people who found out may or may not have been vaccinated but that wasn't randomized and certainly blinding was gone. Ultimately, they had 6,000 participants. So from November, 2020 through like March, 2021, they were able to enroll 6,000 participants all over the world. Mean age 53, about half of the participants had increased risk of COVID exposure and 75% had increased risk for vaccine failure. So that some of them had both. At the cutoff date, which was May 21st, the primary endpoint, so symptomatic COVID infection, occurred in 1% of the placebo group compared with 0.2% of the active treatment group. And, you know, I'll just pause there for a second because it sounds sort of funny, right? One, only 1% of the people got COVID. And you just have to remember that in November of 2020, right, we were in like global lockdown, right? Because now it's like 
I mean, how many of your friends have COVID right at this moment? You know, yeah, uh, my daughter like, may have it as we speak. Right, it's like thirty percent of the people I know have COVID right now. She's outside of this room, febrile. But this is ancestral <laughs> variants of COVID yeah, exactly. that were really dangerous in a population that had no immunity whatsoever. Very different times. So, and I might get back into that if I if I feel like in a minute. There was a second six month follow up date, and the results were somewhat similar. By that point, one point eight percent had symptomatic infection in the placebo group compared to 0.3 in the active treatment group. Severe infection had only occurred in like one patient in either group by that point. The safety profile was excellent with um, the only notable adverse event being injection site pain, which was actually pretty similar between the placebo group and the, the immune globulin group. So that's sort of that. You know, it's interesting because we don't really do this, right? Like we have vaccines, we don't do this stuff. This stuff actually has an FDA emergency use authorization. So there are some people who got this, and there are some people who still get it, but it's very small numbers. There's not much point in belaboring this. It was a nice try, and if the vaccines had not been so effective, I could easily have seen all of us getting this at intervals. One thing that I thought I'd talk about a little bit is this risk reduction here. It's kind of interesting because in absolute terms, right, it's 1.8% 1.8% versus 0.5%. So the absolute risk reduction is 1.5%, which yields a number needed to treat of 75 to prevent one symptomatic COVID case, right? But so, the relative risk is how? Uh, well, the relative risk is 80%. Ah. And it's very interesting because normally we poo-poo the relative risk and insist on talking about the absolute risk. And I think that's fair. But if you consider that the baseline increased from you know 1% infection rate to what it is now where it's at least 5 times higher right that actually makes the 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 relative risk should presumably stay the same and the absolute risk therefore should get a, the absolute risk reduction should get a lot bigger so in today's world where you know covid infection rates are about 5 or so times higher than they were back then the number needed to treat is probably actually more like 7.5 people to prevent one symptomatic COVID infection. I don't know. It's just an interesting point about how normally relative risk is not the right metric and the number needed to treat is, but if the baseline can change very dramatically in a population, then maybe relative risk has an important role to play. Having said all of that, it's irrelevant for here because we have you know, a lot better strategies that involve vaccination and not using these monoclonal antibodies. Abstract number 15, Management of Complicated Appendicitis During Pregnancy in the U.S. This is by Ashbrook et al. from JAMA Network Open. Editor's Commentary Using a large data set, the authors conclude that non-operative management for pregnant patients with complicated appendicitis is basically bad on all fronts. This may be true, but I have several issues with their findings, the largest one being A proportion of patients may have been placed into incorrect groups for analysis, and I'm quite sure this is actually true. This highlights some of the difficulties with drawing meaningful conclusions from observational data without being given any clinical information. We've covered several trials looking at non-op management for appendicitis, and they all seem to say the same thing. A third of the patients will say, sure, I'll try antibiotics. A third of those will eventually need surgery. And of those, a third will need it early, right within away. the first couple of days. But how does this calculation change, if at all, during pregnancy, when you're dealing with two patients and not one? 
So is it better to avoid a trip to the OR if possible or antibiotics causing harm to the fetus? You know, moms are very hesitant to take any kind of medication, maybe appropriately. This is a retrospective cohort study spearheaded out of USC, where Mike and I work and MRAP favorite Kenji Anaba is an author on this paper, using the national inpatient sample to identify pregnant patients with complicated appendicitis seen in the U.S. between 2003 and 2015. So it's a bit of an older sample, and they say they stopped in 2015 because that's when they stopped using ICD-9s, which is how they identified their patients and switched over to ICD-10 codes. So using ICD-9 procedure codes, they basically divided study patients into three groups. Those with successful non-operative management, defined as no surgery on the index hospitalization. Those with failed non-operative management, and those who were taken immediately to the OR for their complicated appendicitis. Of the over 8,000 identified patients, 12% were put in the successful non-op management group, about a third were put into the failed non-op management group, and then about 55% went immediately to the OR for their complicated appendicitis. They run a regression. They actually present lots of data here. Too much data. You know, one of those red flags when you're reading a paper. Way too much data. They found immediate operation was associated with lower odds of maternal infectious complications, including amniotic infection, pneumonia, and sepsis, compared with successful and unsuccessful non-operative management, with no association with odds of preterm delivery, preterm labor, or abortion with antepartum hemorrhage. Further, they report a failure rate of non-operative management of 74%. So, All in all, they conclude pretty strongly in the paper that this is sort of a damning picture of non-operative management for complicated appendicitis in pregnancy, but there are some major limitations to this paper that significantly impact their findings. First off, this is not a trial. We have absolutely no idea why individual patients got the management strategies that they did. Secondly, they don't provide any clinical data between the groups to see how they differed at baseline. If one group was sicker than another, not sicker, symptoms longer, no clue. At all. Different surgical risks associated with them. The different hospitals, they... different, different anything. Third, at best, their findings can show association, not causation. Fourth, they don't capture patients who went to the OR after discharge from their initial visit, right? So if you didn't, if you were admitted to the hospital, didn't go to the OR, and came back one day later and needed to go to the OR, you were still called a successful non-operative management because all of their case definition was done on the first visit only. And that leads into my fifth and probably most major issue with the paper is that this whole case identification thing. So if a patient was admitted, a pregnant patient got admitted from the ER, went upstairs, it went to the OR 25 hours after their admission they were considered a failure of non-operative management because they didn't go immediately, right? But that could have been very well the plan, you know, give them antibiotics for a day, cool them off, give them some time to decide, OR's busy, the hospital's busy, they're not that sick, you know, so- You're just optimizing them. I fear that they have really miscategorized patients in this paper. At least there's a high likelihood that could have happened. And that also could explain 
why so few patients in their sample went immediately to the OR, which seems like that's probably what you would do for a pregnant patient. Yeah, I think, but, that, I think you're right. I mean, this, this one's, I'm, I'm trying to picture this, especially this is a long time ago. Yeah. Right. So non-op management was not even a thing. I mean, it was a little bit of a, it was a twinkle in its parents' eyes, but it wasn't like a relatively routine thing. So I'm agreeing with you totally. I think that if yeah. they didn't go to the OR right away, it was because they were like, let's get, let's cool them down. We plan to take them to the That's OR, right. but we're going to cool them down. We're going to get them all tucked away by OB-GYN. We're going to give steroids if we need to give steroids in case that we have to emergently deliver a baby. We're going to do everything right so mom is optimized, 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 and get the right surgeons in there. Everything standby, yeah. and that takes 25 hours. And then they're like, see, non-op didn't manage, yeah, didn't that, work. That That's not has fair. to be the case yeah. because all of this discussion, like you said, I mean, this is some of these patients came from 2003. Yeah. You know, I mean- and the fact that 50% of them only went to the OR, yeah. that's impossible. It's yeah. just, imp- they have well, to yeah. have, these problems I'm mentioning as theoretical are real. They, yeah, have, they to be real. have to be real. So, I, you know, I wish we could learn a little bit more from this paper. Yeah. I don't think we can. I hope surgeons don't take this one, like, too much, like, to, you know. Having said that, I mean, you know, it, it's telling you, yeah, take the lady, take her to the operating room, you know, which is fine. That's sort of what we do. At least it's not saying the opposite. Somehow convoluted got the the opposite message yeah, that's true. and could be practice changing could, I guess, without any evidence. I guess it could have been even worse. Always room for that. It's a sort of bizarro way of being spinning something to be positive. <laughs> it's positive because it could have been worse. <laughs> Abstract number 16, non-operative or surgical treatment of acute Achilles tendon rupture by Mihrov. I'm pretty sure I butchered that, but I apologize. And also the New England Journal of Medicine. Editor's commentary. In this randomized controlled trial comparing open repair, minimally invasive surgery, and non-operative management of patients with Achilles tendon rupture, the authors found no difference in patient-reported outcomes or physical function at 3, 6, or 12 months. However, the non-operative group had higher rates of re-rupture, while the two surgical techniques had higher rates of nerve injury. Wow, so, this is like your fourth new it's my third, third or one. fourth. It's my third. And I had one. Yeah. No, it was just there's like stuff a that was around the program. Because usually it's like really weird stuff or B cell lymphoma no treatment. Applicability stuff like at that. all yeah. to what we do. And this isn't directly on point, but you know, we do see Achilles ruptures, you know, not uncommonly in the ED. And obviously our main responsibility in the ED is to clearly to diagnose it, splint it, and refer them along not to really recommend a long-term treatment strategy, but I always think it's a good idea to understand the next stages of care so you can help the patient navigate through the healthcare system and optimize the chance of, you know, sort of them getting what they need and what's best for them. Since I went to medical school, I've always been taught that Achilles ruptures can be managed either operatively or non-operatively with a plantar flexed sort of splint or cast, this thing called an equine boot, right? I've just never seen anyone do the non-operative management. It feels like the operative strategy is the dominant way. So there's still significant controversy around that. The advantage or potential advantage of operative repair is that you may be able to get into rehab earlier, but the downside is additional cost and additional risk of nerve or other tissue injury, obviously, from the operation. Now we have minimally invasive surgery options as well. That might be able to sort of split the difference, right? It's like, it's not, it's not a real operation, but it's not, not sewing the tendon back together. Anyway, 
These authors conduct a three-arm randomized controlled trial comparing the three strategies for acute Achilles rupture. Obviously, this is unblinded. The patients know what strategy they received, but they did blind the assessors by making the assessors examine the patients at the follow-up period wearing a long sock so they couldn't see the scar. Now, how would a long sock on the assessor impact their... <laughs> they, they put it over their head and it they, made them blind. They wrapped it around their... <laughs> yeah, their eyes. Their eyes, like in dodgeball. Right, yeah. You know, yeah. Right at the end. Yeah. It's not a sock. I know it's a scarf, but he wraps it around. Yes, that's how they did it. I so see. Now wow. we Now we have a very crystal clear picture of what transpired during this study. Anyway, the primary outcome was the change in score on a patient-reported outcome scale called the Total Achilles Rupture Score at 12 months. And this is a 10-item questionnaire with scores that can range from 0 to 100, with higher scores indicating better health. So 100% health, right? The minimum clinically significant score on that scale is 8 points. There were a variety of secondary endpoints. Ultimately, they randomized 526 patients. There's a lot of patients for a surgical operation study. The mean age was 40, 76% men. The change in the score was minus 17, minus 16, and minus 15 in the non-op group, minimally invasive group, and open repair group, respectively. So no statistically significant difference at 12 months. At other time points, the magnitude of the drop in their, their total Achilles score was larger right? Because it indicates more disability from their baseline. Their baseline, they had, my Achilles works great. So at, at three months, the drop was like minus 50, but it didn't vary between the different treatment modalities. So again, in, in terms of other things like physical tests the, and then other symptoms like the ability to jump and do things like that, they had a variety of those secondary outcomes, no difference across the three treatment strategies. However, the complication rate did vary across the groups. 6% re-ruptured in the non-operative group, usually within the first 10 weeks. So they, and, and that's been a, a known question about the conservative approach is that you know, people do something and it's not up to full tensile strength and they re-rupture and it sets them back 10 weeks. The re-rupture rate was less than 1% in the operative group. On the other hand, Three to five percent, depending on which surgical strategy they got, developed nerve injury in the operative group. You know, so they had some numbness and stuff like that in their foot, and that never happened in the non-operative group. So there's a trade-off. You know, there's a little bit higher re-rupture risk, but there's a little bit higher nerve injury risk if you go into the operative category. And that's the the long and short of this study. Both strategies highly effective, and it's which trade-off your particular patient or you yourself are willing to accept is probably going to be the dominant deciding factor and not something that's like, you know, this is the best way to approach this. Quick take. Abstract number 17. Reduction of dietary sodium to less than 100 millimoles in heart failure, sodium HF, an international open-label randomized controlled trial. This is by Ezekowitz et al., from Lancet. Editor's commentary. Although it was stopped short of its enrollment goal due to COVID, in this large international randomized control trial, the authors did not observe a reduction 
in clinical events among patients with heart failure who are randomized to a low-sodium diet compared with control patients. This one is a quick take, not because it's a bad study or anything, just because this is something everyone should know about, but not directly applicable probably to what we do. For decades, patients with heart failure have been told to lower their salt intake, but in truth, there is very little scientific evidence, if any, to support this recommendation. Sodium HF is an international open-label randomized controlled trial enrolling adult patients with New York Heart Association Class 2 or 3 heart failure from 26 sites in six countries. They enrolled 800 patients and randomly assigned them either to usual care according to their local sort of what-you-should-eat guidelines or a low-sodium diet of less than 100 millimoles or less than 1,500 milligrams per day for a year. At the end of the study, they found no difference in the primary composite outcome of cardiovascular-related admissions to the hospital, cardiovascular-related ED visits, or all-cause death. 15% in the low-sodium group versus 17% in the usual care. All-cause death, if they sort of slice and dice them a little bit, occurred in 6% of patients in the low-sodium group versus 4% in the usual care group. Medium sodium intake was lower in the intervention group. And this is important to report, right? Mike, you're not comparing same to same. Even right, though yeah. They were it's told, easy to, we told you to do it, we just didn't do it. And of course, it, does, it doesn't work then. Right. Yeah. So in the, in, the, what they, in the low sodium group, they ended up having an average intake of about 1,600 milligrams per day versus about 2,300 milligrams per day in the control group. In supplemental data, the authors do report that the low-sodium group had greater improvements in symptoms such as swelling, fatigue, coughing, and quality of life. They had to stop enrollment in this trial early due to COVID. So the authors argue at the end of the day, and I actually watched some videos from the authors. This is a pretty big publicized trial talking about it online saying, hey, this is still an open debate, right? And they say that for two reasons. One is they say they were underpowered at the end of the day for their primary outcome. You know, it's pretty rare events, these primary outcomes. They wanted closer to 1,000 patients. They got 800. But the second one was sort of like all these secondary outcomes favored the low-sodium group. So they still still is an open debate. Big trial. Everybody's talking about it. Worth knowing about it. Abstract number 18, traumatic brain injury patients with platelet inhibition receiving platelet transfusion demonstrate decreased need for neurosurgical intervention and decreased mortality. This is by Miles et al. and it's in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. Editor's Commentary. This is a single-site retrospective study with poor research methods that obliquely claims that TEG-PM is associated with improved clinical outcomes. The methodology does not sufficiently support that claim, and at this time, basing treatment on TEG-PM results should be considered experimental at best. This sounds like a whopper based on the title. Exactly. So, platelet transfusions are confusing in the setting of brain injury. The PATCH trial showed that for patients with atraumatic brain hemorrhage, on antiplatelet agents, not going to the OR, so on antiplatelets, not going immediately to the OR, transfusions seemed to cause worse clinical outcomes. It, was, it really caused it. That was an RCT. For patients with traumatic brain injury, there have not been any notable RCTs on the topic, and the little evidence that is available is very ambiguous. 
Also, platelet dysfunction has been demonstrated to occur in cases of traumatic brain injury, whether the patient's on an antiplatelet agent or not, and is generally a marker of poor prognosis. So maybe they need platelets because their platelets don't work because they're poisoned by an antiplatelet agent, or there's something else circulating in there and they need platelets anyway. But we don't know who to give that to, right? Well, enter TEG, and specifically TEG-PM, which is thromboelastography with platelet mapping. And this platelet mapping, I don't honestly understand it very well. They, it looks at the ADP and arachidonic acid pathways for platelets, but it tells you whether the platelets are functioning or not in the way that these viscoelastic assays tell you about other clotting factors. This study is a retrospective study. It's a chart review of head bleed patients at a single center in Tennessee who received this TEG-PM thing and an associated therapeutic strategy. The authors state that at this institution, all traumatic brain injury patients get a TEG-PM with the platelet mapping, and if the platelet pathways are more than 60% inhibited, they are given a one unit of platelets, and then they repeat the TEG-PM to see if that restored the activity and presumably repeat until that has occurred. The chart review methods are... I'm going to let you guess. Let's see. If I was to guess between uber, uber terrible or kind of terrible <laughs> or just not that good, I'm going to go with the middle category. Uh, well, I don't know. They weren't described at all. There you go. So we don't know. <laughs> there were no chart review methods described. I have no idea. The outcomes of interest were bleed progression, which was not defined, mortality, inpatient, and neurosurgical intervention. 453 patients with traumatic brain injury, got this TEG-PM during the study period. It was like a one-year study period. The mean age was 60, and they don't give us their baseline GCS, interestingly. I know, super weird. They give us their head AIS, that area injury score, which was three, which is pretty injured. Of that group, 256, so 56% of the cases, had platelet inhibition as defined by the TEG-PM. 34% of the patients in the inhibited group So of that 256, 34% were on an antiplatelet agent, okay? But that means that 65% of them were not on an antiplatelet agent. And again, remember that traumatic brain injury itself can cause platelet dysfunction. That's been demonstrated previously. Interestingly, of the people who were not platelet inhibited or, you know, by the TEG-PM, 20% of them were on an antiplatelet agent too. So it's kind of interesting sort of thing there. Only 147 got platelets. So of the 256 that were platelet inhibited, only just over half of them actually got a platelet transfusion. We have no idea why that was, why there was such poor protocol adherence there. And of those, 107 got that repeat TEG-PM, right? So they really just didn't follow the protocol very much. Of those that got repeat TEG-PM, Two-thirds of them had an improvement in their platelet function, and one-third did not. Overall, bleed progression, need for neurosurgical intervention, was similar for those that had a TEG-PM identified platelet inhibition and those that did not. So it was, the rates were basically exactly the same. But that's not what the title said. It, it said something different. So what, what's going on there? They sliced this down. To look at the outcomes, and this is, it's going to be hard to believe, but for patients who had inhibition and got platelet transfusions and got a repeat tag, 
and had improvement on their platelet function after that repeat tag and compared the mortality and such for that group to the group that had all of those same things but did not have improvement in their platelet function after all of that. That's right. That, so that's what they're basing that's their right. title on? Absolutely, 100%. Am I going to have to start putting Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery in my, in my resuscitation pile? Yeah. I mean, honestly, this is just almost not science at all. I mean, setting aside the issue of no chart review methods, right, whatsoever, which is really important in terms of bleed progression, understanding a lot of yeah, these well, you things. you said they didn't even define the outcome. Yeah. I mean, they didn't define what bleed progression was. Right. They didn't. It's simply not okay to compare patients who got platelet transfusion with improvement against those who got platelet transfusion but did not have a TEG-based improvement. After all, as clinicians, all I can do is prescribe platelets. I can't prescribe TEG-based improvement yeah, or platelet function. Yeah, will have that. Right, exactly. I mean, that's my point. I just can't, I can't order that, right? So further, it's really, really odd to me that they didn't report on the outcomes of patients who got platelets, all of the patients that got platelets on the basis of the TEG-PM, but only those who got platelets and had a follow-up TEG-PM. That's just such a weird thing to do because the intent to treat is I gave them platelets on the base of this. And they just, it's, not, it's just not in the paper. So it's really, really weird. There's also so much potential selection bias in this study as to make the results totally suspect. Why did so many people who had platelet inhibition not receive platelets when their protocol said to do it? And what were their results? The ones that didn't get platelets, but the TEG-PM said should have gotten platelets. I mean, it's just nuts. My guess is that physicians looked at those patients and said, this is a tiny bleed. They're not on an antiplatelet. I'm not giving them platelets. And then in the other ones, they were like, ah, this is a bigger bleed. Or, well, they just took you know, a gram of uh, aspirin right before they got to the ER, so let's give them platelets. So basically, the TEG-PM was you know, sort of along for the ride, but not really directing care. In the end, at best, this is some hypothesis generating stuff. And mostly, I think it should be in our database so that you're vaguely aware of this emergent technology of this platelet mapping with TEG. But you should equally be aware that this one is absolutely not proven to be useful in determining which patients with traumatic brain injury benefit from platelet transfusions. House of Medicine. Abstract number 19. Comparison of home antigen testing with RT-PCR and viral culture during the course of SARS-CoV-2 infection is by Chu et al. from JAMA Internal Medicine. And it is commentary. This study suggests that if you are concerned you may have COVID and are using a home antigen test, one negative test is not good enough to exclude disease. Repeating testing one to two days later has value as sensitivity peaks several days after illness onset, or just go get a PCR test. Of course, all these numbers may be radically different in the face of new variants and changing population immunity, so stay tuned. So at the time of this recording, right, things in this flux change pretty rapidly. Antigen tests, home antigen tests for SARS-CoV-2 are readily available. You can go to the local pharmacy and get them. Low cost even free in some cases, the government is sending out some, and are approved for use outside the clinical setting. I remember a time six months ago, this was not the case. <laughs> These things are on, like on eBay for a yeah. million dollars. Yeah. There, 
has been some evaluation of how these tests perform when compared to real-time reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction, PCR, but no previous description of how their test characteristics change over the course of a SARS-CoV-2 infection. In this study, they recruited a convenient sample of individuals with confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection and their household members of all ages, and basically gave them the quick view test. That's the test they used, because all these tests also have sort of varying test characteristics between them. But the quick view, I think, is the one that the government was sending out too. I can't totally remember. But gave them all a quick view test to be used daily at home, regardless of symptoms, for 15 days. After getting COVID. That's correct. Nasopharyngeal PCR swabs were also repeated at day 14 for everybody, and some patients got an additional test at day 7. And it sounds like that was just based on, like, consent. It was like, we'd like to do one at 7, but you don't have to if you don't want to. Among 552 individuals from 151 households enrolled in the Household Transmission Investigation, 225 individuals, or 41%, from 107 households had PCR-confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection and completed at least one home antigen test. The median age was 29 years. Very few were hospitalized, 2%. 86% were unvaccinated. This was done in the time before there was widespread vaccine use. The 225 enroll cases contributed to just over 3,000 home antigen tests and 642 nasopharyngeal swabs, including 593 pairs of antigen tests and NP swabs that were performed at the same time, right? That's what they were really looking at. They were saying like, okay, you know, okay, you went into the ED and got like a proper PCR test. How well did that work against a home antigen test done on the same day? That's really what they were asking here. And how did that change over the course of your infection? Overall, sensitivity of the home antigen test was 64%, with a confidence interval spanning between 56 and 70% when compared to the same-day PCR. It was higher. It did work better, that is to say, in symptomatic individuals than in asymptomatic individuals. Antigen test sensitivity peaked at four days after illness onset. So the best this home test did was just under 80%. It was 77%. Also, evaluated the value of two different serial testing protocols. Okay, so one test we're saying is like 60% or whatever. What if they asked you to, they looked at your tests separated by one day or separated by two days, right? So does that improve the test characteristics? And it did. Both of them worked better than a single test. At one day apart, the sensitivity increased to 81%. So if you tested today and tomorrow. Right. So if either one of those tests were positive. That's correct. And then if you split them apart by two days, so tested today and two days from now, the sensitivity went up to 85%. So thinking about using test and isolation, that's like what a lot of people talk about doing, take that home antigen test. The authors reported that six days after illness, the test result positivity was 61%. So 60, about half of people were still testing positive at day six, and at day 11, that number dropped to 16%. So, but they were, they were PCR positive at that point. Correct. So there's some questions about 
They're definitely PCR positive for yeah. even longer than yeah, that. Yeah. Like we know that they're going to say, what does it mean? Is are what you is infectious? It mean? Are you, are... they do, I didn't go into that in this summary. They do sort of talk about that in relation to viral cultures as yeah. well, using that as a proxy for infectivity. Yeah. And it, it doesn't seem to predict it incredibly well. That's, that's really the crux of all this stuff. So thumbs things to think about here is we don't know how the test characteristics would change in the current landscape where vaccination rates combined with previous infection rates are very high and new circulating variants dominate infections. The study was done prior to Omicron. And we don't know how it would work among people who did not have a known exposure who are asymptomatic, right? They're like, I need to get COVID tested for work. I came back right. from a vacation or something like that. and I need to cope. We have no yeah. idea what the sensitivity is like in that group. So this is a really meaty paper. Where yeah. they're, 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 what they're trying to do is just get into super into the weeds about these home antigen tests, right. you know, and they're saying, well, okay, what if we have some protocols we do two days in a row and how does that compare with viral cultures and stuff? I think it's a lot. They tried to do a lot. Yeah. It's a lot to take in. It's very complicated. So I think for me, I was sort of like, what am I supposed to learn from this paper? You know, other than there's a lot of different ways to check for COVID and they all work very differently. I think it's clear to me that if you're really worried for some reason, right. you know, you're like, about to walk into your grandma's, go visit grandma, and she's on chemotherapy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's that side. There's the exposure side, but there's also the personal side. You're like, oh, I was in a room with somebody oh. who had COVID for a day. <laughs> like, I shared yeah. a bedroom with them, right? I think one negative test is probably not right for whatever reason. Well, I just mean that like, yeah, I was, I was highly exposed and now I'm going to go see somebody where yes. I might actually kill them yeah. if I bring them COVID. That's exactly right. Or, you know, like, you know, for, with school-aged children, you're sending them back to school. You don't want to nah. like have a outbreak at school, have it be your fault. You know, for whatever reason, you're concerned about yourself, the people you're going to go visit or whatever. One negative home antigen test is probably not enough. I think that's like, for me, the big picture big take home from this paper. And unfortunately, I feel like I have to test that theory in about 15 minutes after this recording. <laughs> so Ray has been sick for two days now with one negative home antigen test. Yeah. yeah. Depends what you want to know. <laughs> Depends what you want to know. <laughs> the, the old adage, don't ask the question if you don't want to know the answer. Abstract number 20, screening for health-related social needs in the emergency department, adaptability and fidelity during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is by Murray et al. in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Editor's commentary. This single-site quasi-experimental study demonstrated that screening for health-related social needs in ED patients could be performed over the phone by people working off-site as efficiently as when performed with on-site workers. This innovation increases the feasibility of screening for these needs in inpatients in community EDs where on-site resources may be scarce. Further research should consider whether these activities could be done asynchronous to the ED visit. It's really an interesting paper for me. I have like, I'm sort of like a little bit interested in, in what they did, but I feel like there's some bigger implications. So Anyway, the idea is that the ED is a great place to identify and interact with patients on the margins of the healthcare system, but who have tremendous medical and social needs. That's why we're asked to screen, you know, for all sorts of things. We're asked to screen patients for a variety of illnesses, injuries, and needs ranging from interpersonal violence to HIV to Ebola, we still do that, to food insecurity, all very important things. Unfortunately, 
were also under enormous and increasing pressure to turn over ED beds, so screenings that are not directly relevant to the clinical encounter are often not done due to timing and personnel or done in a perfunctory manner. One question is, can you do this screening remotely? You know, this could make it more feasible. And it's been claimed that there's something special about the interface in the ED that makes in-person screening and intervention more effective, right? Others counter by saying, boomer, you know, basically that newer generations of patients are super comfortable getting all sorts of stuff done entirely online, including their entire education, right? So the, the idea that they need to be, you know, touching hands and face-to-face is really almost antiquated. You look like you want to say something. No, no. Oh, I'm, I'm agreeing. I'm agreeing. <laughs> okay. I'm just sort of thinking about, yeah. you know, my experience with patients and stuff in the ED. And I'm kind of thinking even more to the, you know, maybe doing it remotely or virtually ever, because when you're in the ED, you may be very much in distress, in pain, I, on medications, totally procedural sedation. You're getting interrupted right. by clinical yeah. care. Yeah. And ED docs or, you know, APPs, whoever's listening to this, even medical may not be the best at doing this stuff no, anyway, absolutely. even if you bring in a professional. Right. So there's so many competing interests. It seems like in the quiet of your own home, when you're all medicated and yeah. like feeling better, that yeah. may be a Two better days later. time. Yeah, I was thinking of even from a clinical side, not even the the, the technology comfort side. No, no, I totally, absolutely agree that there's this possibility of doing it not on site and then doing it asynchronously as well. So, you know, not when they're there, you know, your, your screeners are at home and so is the patient. This study only tackles the first part. Does screening need to be done in person, right? So the authors take advantage of this natural experiment that happened during COVID when there was this huge push to move people you know, who don't need to be in the hospital, out of the hospital. And their screening, their team that screened for health-related social needs fell into that category. They went home. You know, there's maybe they were a research team. That's not entirely clear. But, you know, a lot of people went home and said, don't come to the hospital. You're going to get exposed. You're going to expose people. We don't want that. So this study assesses the ability of that team to screen people at the bedside versus via telephone. So basically in the pre-phase, the screeners were in the ED and they went through the ED and they directly asked patients face-to-face about social needs and then they gave the appropriate interventions. During the pandemic, the screeners worked from home and they'd survey the EHR from home and they would call into the patient's room to conduct the screening and deliver what interventions were needed. Again, it's important to note in this case that in both cases, the screening happened in real time. So they didn't do it totally asynchronously. So what'd they find? In the two-month pre-period from November 19 to January 2020, they screened 666 patients, and that compares favorably with the 592 that they screened in the post-period, despite the fact that their ED volume had decreased by 30%. So sort of fractionally, they had, you know, or proportionately, they had uh, screened more people. The proportion of patients in whom a health-related social need was identified increased in the post-phase from 11 to 20%, and that might reflect covid things that were going on. But importantly, the proportion that received the necessary resources stayed the same pre and post at 44%. They were able to deliver what they needed to deliver, the same pre and post face-to-face versus not. So for me, this sort of says that screening can be done by off-site personnel who can deliver the necessary interventions at least as efficiently as when they were in the room with patients. It remains to be seen if this can be done asynchronous to the ED visit, which would be especially valuable as it would increase the feasibility of doing this stuff 
and community EDs that aren't going to have resources, you know, 24-7 and all that kind of stuff. But that's a topic for another day. Abstract number 21. Trauma transfers discharge from the ED. Is there a role for telemedicine? This is by Lindsay et al. from the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. Editor's Commentary. In this retrospective review from a single center, the authors conclude that 13% of trauma transfers could have been avoided by using telemedicine. Due to a lack of description in their methods and some issues I have with their assumptions, I don't actually know if this is accurate, an overestimate, or an underestimate. But the fact that they feel bringing telemedicine to rural areas that really need them is a message I can get behind. It's great to have trauma surgeons talking about this as a podium paper at their big meeting, as I know the concept benefits both our specialty and patients. We've had, I think each one of us now has had a couple of stinkers from this journal well, so far. I had this one month. stinker, you had one stinker. Yeah, we each had one. This one's a really good paper. Oh, this, this one I like, so it kind of right. comes so back redeems, at the end, yeah. redeems itself. So the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma defines rural. I just thought this was interesting. They have a definition of what but, rural means. As, no high-paid ER doctor or trauma surgeon would live there. <laughs> it's an area where geography, population density, weather, distance, or availability of professional or institutional resources combine to isolate the trauma victim in an environment where access to definitive care is limited. Rural. Look that up in Webster's. Look that up in Webster's. Not there. Many trauma patients seen in rural settings end up being transferred to regional trauma centers And here, the authors sort of bring up the idea that with the explosion in telemedicine capacity after the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, maybe some of these transfers could be avoided with a telemedicine visit or a telephone call. The purpose of this study is to identify common patient factors that are associated with those transferred for higher level of care, but subsequently discharged directly from the trauma bay. A retrospective review of two years of patient charts from a single level one trauma center in Oklahoma. The methods are scant. That is, you know, that's a problem. That seems to be a theme here. Yeah. There's no mention of how they dealt with uh, discrepancies, missing data, conflicting information, or even if the reviewers were blind to the study hypothesis of this was an appropriate transfer or not. Of 2,350 transfer cases, about 25% were discharged directly from the trauma bay. Just over 600. Of those just over 600, About a third required an intervention or specialist consultation. About half needed a lack repair. About 25% needed an optho exam. 18% needed a splint. And 5% needed reduction of a fracture or dislocation. They make some assumptions and some exclusions and end up concluding that 13% of the patients had no injuries at all and didn't need anything, didn't need that specialist consultation, didn't need a lack repair or something like that that was complicated, and may have been good candidates for telemedicine. Now, I don't love the science in this paper still, you know, but I do love the tone. Yeah, I agree with you. The tone sounds different than some of these other ones where they're like, they didn't need anything. It's a wasted transfer. They don't say that. They um, don't say that we're at all. all doctors yeah, can't they do say, anything. Like, they are kind of the flip. They're like, no, they, a trauma surgeon evaluated them. That has some value. Right. The tone in this one is right on point. That's why I really like the paper. Right? They're not even saying that the patients who are discharged, even with no injuries, 
they got an evaluation, they got an opto exam, they didn't find a single thing. They're still not saying those were inappropriate transfers. Right. They're just saying maybe those could have been done by telehealth. Right, right which is a great option. Great message. Period. So, you know, if you don't fixate on the number, the yeah. number is probably not accurate. They're just saying there are some. Yeah. There clearly are some, and that I can totally agree with. Now, they could have concluded, like Mike said, that those who didn't need a procedure or consult, they were all unnecessary, right? Right. They were inappropriate, and the doctors that are working in these rural communities need to educate themselves about uh, that's, I mean, that's, I feel like a lot of times that's the tone. That's right. The tone here is different because the number they give, this 13%, that could be an overestimate or an underestimate. And I could think of lots of different reasons why that's the case. Like maybe they just got like a CT scan done or some specialized imaging study they could have done at the transferring center, making it, you know, an underestimate. Like, or maybe it was an overestimate in that, you know, the- Right. Some of these lack repairs were not major lack repairs. They really went there to get the trauma evaluation. That's exactly right. They, they would have been happy to repair the lack. So let's not fixate on the number. Okay. That, that, so that even though you know, I'm saying it's a let's good paper. Let's not fixate on the science. Let's not fixate on the science. <laughs> I don't know how many of these transfers are truly unnecessary, but I know there were some. And in my mind, the fact that the tone is changing and trauma surgeons are at least talking about this. Hey, maybe we could do telemedicine. I'm not saying all these ER docs need to learn everything. Let's think about a new way of doing this. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I you know, we've talked about this I think a few times over the years and I feel particularly in rural settings this is really I mean, there's a lot of trauma transfers in urban settings, but in rural settings, you know, you end up 2 hours away from your house, maybe you had to take a fixed wing plane or a helicopter or something like that, which is potentially enormous cost certainly to the system, but maybe direct cost to the patient. And then they're like, you know, there's you know, you can go home and a few, a couple hours later, now figure out how you're going to get 200 miles back to home. That's like a huge burden. And so there's a very patient-centered nature to this approach as well that I, I'm very fond of, and I'd love to see you know it built out. Quick take. Abstract number 22, association of the 2020 U.S. presidential election with hospitalizations for acute cardiovascular outcomes. This is by Mefford et al., and it's in JAMA Network Open. Editor's Commentary. Editor's Commentary. The 2020 election was associated with an increased risk of hospitalization for cardiovascular events among Kaiser members in California. I think most people out there would agree that the current politics and political reporting happening in America are driving us crazy. This study asked the question, Not just are they driving us crazy, but are they causing us to have physical problems as well? Right. Because, you know, we say like, oh, it's giving me a heart attack, but is Is it giving me a heart attack? Specifically, they're looking at whether the 2020 presidential election caused us to have heart attacks and strokes. This study looked at Kaiser members in all of California and calculated the rate of hospital admission for cardiovascular diseases among members in the several days after the 2020 presidential election compared to the couple of weeks before the 2020 presidential election. Okay. Bottom line, the rate of cardiovascular events, stroke, MI, hospitalization with CHF, increased in the five days post-election by 20%. For MI, the rate increased even more about 40% over the control period. Actually, when you look at the graphs that they provide in the, in the study, it looks like 
the increase started about three or four days before the election, peaked at about five days after the election, and maintained throughout the remainder of the study period, which was about a month. The population most affected was older white men, for what it's worth. Now, this was in California. Can you imagine the corresponding data might look like in like Pennsylvania or Georgia or something like that? Anyway, to me, at the end of the day, this says that we need to treat a highly contested presidential election like we treat a major surgery and put everyone at risk on peri-election beta blockers, aspirin, and possibly sevoflurane. Hello, EMA. Welcome to the August 2022 Ultra Summary. I'm Jess Monis, and here with Jenny Beck Esme. Jenny, how are you? I am great. You know what? I'm great. I'm tired, but I'm happy. My <laughs> residents just graduated, and so I'm sad, but I'm happy. You know, like I'm, I'm a mixed bag, but again, more importantly, I think our countdown chain, we're done. Are we done with our countdown chain? We are, we are done with the yeah. chemo. Well, you know, obviously knock on all the well, woods right, 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 and things right, like right, that. Right, but right. like, but yes, I just did my last chemo one week ago. Amazing. And I could not be happier. I am so, so done oh, with that. Congratulations. I mean, huge monkey off of your back. You know, this, yeah. is, this is amazing. I'm so happy for you. But I will say this. So, you know, we record a couple months in advance and obviously COVID is again on fire. And um, sadly, Jenny, you know, I got yep, it. You got rona I did. I got the Rona. And I got, I took Paxlovid, which was magical, but I got the dreaded rebound. You did. You got the rebound. You guys, she was wah, sick for wah. like a month, this poor woman. 20, 20 days. days. 20 days. 20 days. Yeah, no, it was crazy. 20 days. So I had to be quarantined for my family. It was a nightmare. But I will say this, overall, my symptoms were that's, mild. That's so awesome. all the things that I took, yeah, that was, it was pretty good. But I want to follow up to one of our papers that we were talking about last okay. month, because unfortunately, my sad little three-year-old, he got it too, you know, he wasn't able, not old enough to get a vaccine at that time. Mm -hmm. And when we were talking about the paper with the COVID in the croup, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so oh, true. Yeah. So true. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he totally, he got the barking cough. Yeah. yeah. And it was, he got the barking cough. But um, anyway, I will say now that I'm out of my COVID hole, I am feeling pretty good. Well, welcome back. The world is glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Well, are you ready to do this? Let's, let's do it with all my energy. I'm, I'm, I'm psyched. <laughs> all right. Paper number one, nasal high flow therapy during neonatal endotracheal intubation. Neonatal intubation often requires more than one attempt and oxygen desaturation is not uncommon. The authors in this study conducted a randomized control trial comparing high-flow nasal therapy to standard care in neonates at two Australian NICUs. The average gestational age was 28 weeks, and time from birth was only 10 hours. I know, little babies, they were like around two pounds, so tiny. So successful intubation, which they defined as being without physiologic instability, was achieved in half of the high-flow group and about one-third of the standard group, so not too bad. Number needed to treat? Only six. Hmm. So if you find yourself in this terrifying situation and you have access to neonatal high flow, use it. Sold. Paper number two. 
protection by a fourth dose of BNT162B2 against Omicron in Israel. You mentioned it in the opening. I am currently flying high on COVID vaccines because we just got <laughs> approval for the six-month to five-year age group, and I already booked an appointment. I'm so excited. So let's talk about vaccines. This study looks at the effects of a fourth Pfizer dose on the age over 60 population in Israel during the Omicron wave. It's a population-based study, not a randomized trial, with some complicated methods, but the methods are generally pretty similar to what we've seen by this same study group in their previous studies. So, you know, apples, apples, oranges, oranges. They looked at 1.2 million people and found the fourth dose reduced both the risk of infection in general as well as the risk of serious infection. They did find that the protection against infection in general was relatively short-lived, but protection against serious infection was much longer lasting. In further good news, at least with the Omicron variant that was active during the study, the rate of serious infection in the study was super low. COVID is obviously still sucking a huge amount of our brain power and our time, But unlike the early days where we had little or no information and we could all kind of keep up to date by just checking Twitter, we now are getting so much information that most of us probably cannot process all of it on our own. So I just want to make sure that everyone out there knows that there is a core pendium COVID chapter that you can turn to to help you to stay up to date on the latest. And you know what? I think this is great. I I mean, I can say from personal experience, I basically took everything. I took like you know, the prophylactic monoclonals, the monoclonals, the Paxlovid, the third dose, the fourth dose, like anything that was available, I took. And I will say this, even with the rebound, the symptoms that I had were basically like a head cold for 24 to 48 hours. Amazing. And, you know, considering that I got this about uh, three to four days, you know, after getting chemo, I was so lucky because if I spiked a fever, right, now I'm getting neutropenic, you know, fever workup. I mean, this is like, you're going down the rabbit hole here. So like, you know, it means something. This stuff means something. So, you know, I I think it's fantastic. All right. Paper three. Video laryngoscope screen visualization and tracheal intubation performance, a video-based study in a pediatric emergency department. This study explored the issue of screen visualization by looking at patterns during pediatric intubations with a standard geometry blade. There was an 80% first pass success rate and clinicians looked at the screen in 80% of cases. So 20% of the time, it was basically DL. The average time to intubate was 26 seconds, with a median gaze switch of 3 and a max of 22. There were fewer gaze switches in successful attempts, but we don't know why. This was an observational study, so we don't know if fewer switching leads to greater success, or do we just freak out with a difficult airway and search frantically for any view? Hard to say. Hard to say, but I think probably the second <laughs> the, we freak out and our eyes go back and forth and we're all over trying to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, like 22 and 26 seconds. That's actually, like you're basically that's a like, crazy, that's a that, lot. But that yeah, must have been a, a very lot. difficult airway. <laughs> Paper number four safety of the oral factor 11A inhibitor, asundexian, compared with apixaban in patients with atrial fibrillation, a multicenter, randomized, double-blind, double-dummy, dose-finding, phase two study. Asundexian. I don't know how that's supposed to be said. I think you nailed it. It sounds like some, you know, species from a sci-fi television show. (laughs) Asundexian is a novel factor 11A inhibitor. 
bear with me for a little explanation. We are familiar with factor 10A inhibitors. This is a factor 11A inhibitor. The authors explain that factor 11A has a role in clot propagation, but very little role in clot consolidation during hemostasis. So the idea is that by blocking factor 11A, we should be able to stop clots from forming without inducing bleeding, which may make it safer than our 10A inhibitors. This drug is not yet approved, but it could be soon. This is a well-done phase two study, so it's focusing mostly on safety and dosing, and phase three studies are ongoing. AFib patients were randomized to receive one of two different dosing regimens for the study drug or a Pixaban. Only around 800 patients were enrolled, and they found two major bleeding events in the low-dose Asundexian group, one in the high-dose, and six in the Apixaban group. Further phase three studies on using this in patients with indications other than AFib will really help bring it to the market. This drug is dosed just once daily, which hopefully will give it better compliance. It has little renal elimination, so it could be a good option for our renal patients and may have a better bleeding risk profile than our other DOAX. Overall, this seems pretty promising. So I have to say, Mike and Sanjay made this joke, but kudos to these folks. They took it to 11. <laughs> there we go, 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 I get go. it. I could not. Yeah, yeah, Sorry. Yeah. You got to get All that right. joke in there. I'm pretty sure I made that last month too. <laughs> so I'm just going to keep making it every month. All right. Paper number five. Subdissociative dose of ketamine with haloperidol versus fentanyl on pain reduction in patients with acute pain in the emergency department, a randomized clinical trial. We have reviewed a ton of papers on the benefits of low-dose ketamine for the treatment of pain in the ED. One of the hesitations to doing this may be the risk of agitation. To counteract this complication, the study added 2.5 milligrams of IV haldol and then compared it to fentanyl for the treatment of pain. At 30 minutes and all intervals preceding, pain scores were about two points lower with ketamine haldol, and the need for rescue meds was 25% less. Mean agitation scores were slightly higher at 10 minutes with the pairing, but seemed similar to fentanyl after that. For pain here, ketadol works. But for agitation, I would want to see a comparison of ketamine haldol to ketamine alone to really assess the effect. Paper number six, pyrexia in a young infant is height of fever associated with serious bacterial infection. This is a quick take, and I love the question being asked here because it's a clinical question that comes up all the time. And in fact, recently we covered a paper on height of fever in adults. So Sanjay and Mike explained that they picked this because, you know, just to be fair, we should talk about it in kids too. So is a higher fever a scarier fever in our really young babies? Authors here wanted to see if the fever height correlated to serious bacterial infections, namely UTIs, bacteremia, and meningitis. Interestingly, from what I can tell, not pneumonia, which I think is usually included in the list of serious bacterial infections. But anyway, because of the way they did the enrollment, the patient cohort was likely sicker than your average febrile infant. And they looked at just over 1,000 babies 90 days or under with fevers greater than 37.5 who were admitted and got a fever workup. They found the proportion of those with a temperature above 37.5 but less than 38 who had a serious bacterial infection was 13%, 20% for infants whose temp was between 38 and 39, 28% for infants with a temp from 39 to 40, and 25% for infants over 40 degrees Celsius. That was not very many babies. So there may be some hint of a correlation with the degree of fever. You know, it goes up from 13 to 20 to 28, but then back down to 25. 
It's not super impressive. Certainly, I don't think I would use this to be reassured by a lower fever. You know, that does not mean it's going to be less concerning at all. All right, paper number seven. Anakinra treatment in patients with acute Kawasaki's disease with coronary artery aneurysm, a phase 1-2A trial. Kawasaki disease, hard to diagnose, catastrophic to miss. Standard treatment includes IVIG, but there is a medication now being looked at for coronary artery aneurysms called anakinra or kinaret. It's an interleukin-1 receptor antagonist used in rheumatoid arthritis, and it modulates IL-1-related immune and inflammatory responses. This dose escalation study found that up to six weeks of treatment was safe in children with Kawasaki disease with no serious adverse events noted. This study did not look at outcomes, so we need to wait for the phase three trial for that. But at least if you hear of this drug mentioned for this reason, you'll know. Paper number eight, development of a novel emergency department quality measure to reduce very low risk syncope hospitalizations. When to admit and when to discharge syncope is a challenge. The authors here tried to determine what constitutes a low-risk syncope patient, look at how often those patients are admitted, and see if there was any variation in those admissions across the country. They looked at the Canadian Risk Score dataset to identify variables that were very low risk, and also variables that would be available in administrative datasets, and came up with age less than 50 and lack of heart disease. In the Canadian Risk Score dataset, These patients had a risk of adverse events within 30 days that was less than half a percent. So very, very, very low risk. They then looked at this cohort of patients within the nationwide emergency department sample and found about half a million emergency department visits that were this definition of low risk syncope, of whom about two and a half percent were admitted with huge variation across the country. And in general, they kind of saw that large metropolitan areas had higher admission rates. The authors suggest that this could be used as a quality metric and perhaps result in some overall cost savings. Mike talks in detail about his concerns about this. Most notably, these are small numbers to begin with. With 5,000 emergency departments in the U.S., we're talking about 100 admissions per ED. And simply leaving off a second reason for the admission, like anemia, would get the patient coded as low risk without painting a full picture. More great work from a crack team of researchers here, but perhaps not quite ready for prime time. All right. Paper number nine, mapping hemodynamic changes with rapid sequence induction agents in the emergency department. This observational study using data from the Australian and New Zealand Emergency Department Airway Registry looked at post-intubation hypotension related to propofol, ketamine, and thiopentone during RSI. Since we don't use thiopentone here, we'll skip that. Both propofol and ketamine had a dose-dependent association with hypotension. For every one mg per kg, there was about a 40% increase in the odds of hypotension with either propofol or ketamine. Does this mean that ketamine will drop your pressure as much as propofol? No, since there was clearly a selection bias here with sicker patients getting ketamine. The take-home, use the lowest dose you can of whatever medication you choose to get the desired effect. And know that ketamine may not protect you as much as you'd like. For tips on hemodynamically neutral intubations, check out the critical care mailbag from May 2019. Paper 10, the difference between the patient's initial and previously measured systolic blood pressure as predictor of mortality in older emergency department patients. We talk about relative hypotension in the ED a lot. Little academic discussions at the desk as to whether the patient who is normally hypertensive 
what is now normotensive is in fact hypotensive for them. But is this really a thing? These authors looked at roughly 300 patients over age 70 who came to the ED and were triaged as a higher acuity patient. They looked at the chart and averaged their prior three blood pressure readings to establish what they called their baseline blood pressure. They compared that to their triage emergency department blood pressure and looked to see if this correlated to mortality. They found a negative change in their systolic blood pressure by six millimeters of mercury or more was associated with higher odds of death when compared with either no change or with an increase from their baseline. And this was true even if their blood pressure read in the ED was technically normotensive. It's a small study that would need to be replicated before it should become dogma, but it certainly suggests that there's something to those academic discussions. So be wary of that relative hypotension. And it just makes sense, right? Totally agree. It totally makes sense. You know, the other thing I think to be cognizant of is where this information is available in your EMR, right? Like prior blood pressures should not be something that you need to hunt and make 20 clicks to get to, right? It should be something that is easily accessible, that you can easily compare it so you can know where you're standing currently. Yeah, totally agree. All right, paper 11. Dynamic use of fibrinogen under viscoelastic assessment results in reduced need for plasma and diminished overall transfusion requirements in severe trauma. This paper looked at the implementation of a resuscitation protocol guided by the viscoelastic assay, Rotom, to create a goal-directed approach that also coincided with a change in their transfusion protocol. In addition to PRBCs and platelets, patients initially only received plasma, fibrinogen was then added, and eventually the plasma was dropped. While there was no difference in mortality, they did find that the median number of PRBCs went down from 9 and 10 in the plasma and combo period to 6 with fibrinogen use only. Sounds great, but a lot has changed over the years that could muddy the water. This doesn't account for the use of TXA or the general shift toward transfusion stewardship. Let's not forget the similar itactic trial we reviewed in July of 2020, which was a negative trial. To truly assess the impact here, we'd need some prospective data. Paper 12, Usefulness of Contrast-Enhanced Multi-Detector Computed Tomography in Identifying Upper Gastrointestinal Bleeding, a Retrospective Study of Patients Admitted to the Emergency Department. Some upper GI bleeds need an intervention, be it endoscopy, angio, or surgery. But mobilizing any of those services can be a challenge. Authors here wanted to know if they could use a multi-detector CT scan to identify active or recent GI bleeds, and spoiler alert, the answer, unfortunately, is no. Patients all had the CT scan as well as an endoscopy within 24 hours of admission, and this was considered to be the gold standard. Sensitivity of the CT for active bleeding was only 33%, and for recent bleeding dropped down to 27%. So while this would be nice, it's not going to save you that overnight call to your friendly neighborhood gastroenterologist. Yeah, absolutely not. This is just another tactic to be like, oh, why don't you get a CT scan and yeah, then call me yeah, back while, yeah. you know. Buy me a couple like, more hours of sleep. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to no sleep thanks. too, guys. GI doctors. <laughs> I get do. it. We all do. <laughs> Paper 13. Effective intramuscular versus intraarticular glucocorticoid injection on pain among adults with knee osteoarthritis, the KISS randomized clinical trial. Patients come in asking for joint injections all the time. What if an IM injection worked just as well? The authors in this paper compared an intraarticular to an intramuscular injection of 40 milligrams of triamcinolone for pain with osteoarthritis flares. 
Non-inferiority could not be stated at four weeks, but was found at eight and 24. You can listen to Sanjay for an explanation of why there was non-inferiority at some timeframes and not others, but it mostly sounds like a conservative choice of margin. There was no difference in secondary outcomes such as function and quality of life. Overall, this sounds promising. IM injections are fast, and the best part is they can be given by the nurse. Yeah, I mean, this is great. Ideally, you're never going to violate a joint space, right? So if you can give something IM instead of into the joint, why would you not do that? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to, instead of giving this to you IM, which probably works just as well, I'm just going to inject it right into your joint. Yeah, and then, you know, come back in a couple days with your, you know, septic knee. No big deal. Exactly. Paper number 14, intramuscular AZD7442, which is, let me try this, Tixagavimab and Cligavimab. Yes, maybe. For prevention of COVID-19. You like that? I understand now why you wanted to do the odds this month, Dr. (laughs) Notice. Anyway, okay, AZD7442 for the prevention of COVID-19. This is a phase three trial of a monoclonal antibody cocktail that was given to subjects who were either at increased risk for COVID exposure, i.e. healthcare workers, or people who were at high risk for failing to amount an immune response to the COVID vaccine, i.e. immunocompromised patients. It was an IM injection, no, an IV infusion. They found that indeed it seemed to help prevent symptomatic infections But severe infections were just super rare in both groups, in the monoclonal antibody and the placebo group. Yay! Luckily, for most people, the vaccine seemed to be quite effective, so this injection really has limited utility. But it does have emergency use authorization in the United States for individuals who are at high risk of vaccine failure, which may just be good to know for your patients, your friends, or your family members. Yeah, and this is is Evyshield, which I'm assuming that's how you pronounce, I don't really know. But I took that oh, too. Yeah. I, got, I, got, I got everything. <laughs> Pretty much everything like in this month's summary is like what I took. So I got that. I got that. All right. Paper 15. Management of complicated appendicitis during pregnancy in the U.S. By complicated, we're talking about things like perforation, peritonitis, or abscess. They categorize patients into three groups. Successful non-operative management. So patients that did not have surgery during the index visit. Failed non-operative management, patients that received surgery during the visit but not within 24 hours, and immediate operation. About half were taken directly to the OR, a third were considered failed, and 12% were considered successful. All of this suggests that non-operative management is not ideal, which it may not be, but there are so many problems here. If a surgeon decided to take the patient to the OR, but with some delay, it was considered failed non-operative management. If a patient was discharged and came back 30 minutes later and went to the OR, it was considered successful non-operative management. Lots of risk for miscategorization here, so I wouldn't take too much from this paper. You know, I love these, I mean, I'm about to get into one of these too, the surgical management, non-surgical management. They're interesting studies, and they're good for us to be able to kind of help counsel our patients on what other specialties are going to offer them, but there's only so much that it's ever really going to do for me. (laughs) Right. Which, you know, if you actually listen back to last month to Ken and Swami, they think it was last month, they talk about this a little bit, like how we need more studies that are, you know, about things that emergency medicine doctors need to decision making, you know? Right. Sure. This is good to know about, but you're right. You know, like 
ultimately, we're not going to be the ones right. deciding whether to take yeah. it to the we, OR. I, we have to know about it because we have to be a part of the counseling of the patients. Like, I'm not going to cede that responsibility to somebody else. But I'm not going to make this decision, right? I'm not going to decide if the patient's right. going to get one of these or the other. Anyway, long way of saying, let's talk about another one. And I'm going to make it a quick tick, even though I'm not sure if it was. Paper number 16, non-operative or surgical treatment of acute Achilles tendon rupture. This is a randomized controlled trial comparing three treatment strategies for Achilles rupture, non-operative splinting, traditional operative management, and minimally invasive operative management. The outcome measure they used was an Achilles rupture score measured over the course of 12 months, where a higher score indicates fewer symptoms and better function. They found no difference in patient reported scores at 3, 6, or 12 months. So same, same, same. But the non-operative group had a higher rate of re-rupture, and both of the surgical technique groups had a higher rate of nerve injury. So I guess you kind of have to pick your poison. Yeah, exactly right. Paper 17, reduction of dietary sodium to less than 100 millimoles in heart failure in international open-label randomized control trial. We've all heard that patients with heart failure should avoid salt, but is this just a bubbymiza? This is the Sodium HF trial. And Jenny, you ready for this acronym breakdown? I am so ready. It's the study of dietary intervention under 100 millimoles in heart failure. Brilliant. So good. I love a good acronym. <laughs> totally nailed it. Loved it. All right, so they compared this low-sodium diet of less than 1,500 milligrams per day to usual care. There was no difference in the primary composite outcome of cardiovascular-related ED visits or admissions or all-cause mortality. The authors do point out that in the low-salt group, there was an improvement in patient-reported quality of life and clinician-assessed functional class. The study was underpowered due to COVID hitting the scene, so maybe still hold off on those potato chips for now. Boo. I like my potato chips. Paper number 18, traumatic brain injury patients with platelet inhibition receiving platelet transfusion demonstrate decreased need for neurosurgical intervention and decreased mortality. This is a single-center retrospective chart review of TBI patients who received thromboelastography, TEG, with platelet mapping, or TEG-PM. According to the authors, at their institution, all TBI patients get a TEG-PM. And if the platelets are shown to be more than 60% inhibited, they are given a unit of platelets. And this process is repeated, TEG-PM transfusion, TEG-PM transfusion, until the platelets are no longer read as inhibited. But when you look at the numbers that are actually done in this paper, this protocol doesn't seem to be followed very well. And unfortunately, the chart review methods are not described, but the outcomes that they were interested in were bleed progression, again, not defined, mortality and need for neurosurgical intervention. Overall, they found that bleed progression and the need for neurosurgical intervention was similar for patients who had platelet inhibition identified on their TEG-PM and those that did not. But then they dive into some smaller groups and they find a comparison between two groups for which they conclude that TEG-PM may still be useful. I will let you listen over to the full segment for Mike to get into really why this methodology here just doesn't really makes sense. But the take home for me really is this. TEG-PM is an emerging technology, and I am glad authors like these are studying it because I want it to work. Wanting it doesn't make it happen, but I want it to work. <laughs> Think of this paper as a hypothesis-generating paper, certainly not one on which you can make evidence-based practice decisions 
yet. Yeah, I want to say that like wanting is half the battle, but it's, <laughs> it's totally not. Like, that doesn't not even make any science. sense. Not in science. No. Paper 19. Comparison of home antigen testing with RT-PCR and viral culture during the course of SARS-CoV-2 infection. So I love this paper. I mean, to me, this is like one of the most important and practical papers that I think we can take home here. So participants in this study with PCR-confirmed COVID took daily antigen tests to assess its test characteristics. Antigen test sensitivity was 64% compared to PCR and peaked four days after symptom onset at 77%. Sensitivity improved to 81% with a repeat test one day later and to 85% with a repeat test two days later. They also found that at day six, 61% of participants were still positive. But by day 11, only 16% were. The take-home here, if you are symptomatic for COVID, do not be reassured by a negative swab, especially early on. Repeat it the next day and keep going. Yes, I love this paper. The other thing I think that we need to take home from this is what was that number you said was still positive on day six? Over Over half, half. 61%. So over half people are still positive. You can't tell me that if you're swabbing positive, you're not spewing virus all over the place, right? You know what? Jenny, I got to tell you here, you know, when I was in COVID purgatory, I tested every single day for 20 days. And, you know, I mean, aside from the fact of like knowing exactly when I was getting rebound because my test had been like Uh diminishing and then like blew up, you know, I want to know, like, I'm so interested to hear more about the correlation of the strength of that antigen Mm -hmm. line and what that means. Like, what does it mean for infectivity? What does it mean for symptoms? You know, like, can we suss out more on that? Right. I mean, I'm, I'm so interested. I want all of that information. So people who are doing this research, please keep it coming because I'm so interested in and the, you know, the five-day quarantine and then just honor system mask afterwards is <laughs> pretty, yeah, ugh, no. pretty nerve-wracking for me when on day Sketch. six, half of the people were still testing positive. Okay. Anyway, paper number 20, screening for health-related social needs in the emergency department, adaptability and fidelity during the COVID-19 pandemic. So as we know, as ED providers, our departments are used to screen for a lot of health and social needs, and that's important because we're a safety net. This study looks at whether that process can be done by a remote worker rather than by a worker directly at the patient bedside. They used pre-pandemic and post-pandemic time periods to compare, just kind of capitalizing on the fact that people were being forced to work from home. So in the pre-phase, a screener went to the bedside, screened the patient, and then delivered appropriate resources. In the post phase, the screener was based off-site, probably at home, and would call into the patient room to perform the screening and give the resources. The number of patients screened in the pre- and post-phases were similar despite the ED volume dropping during the post-phase because of COVID. The proportion of patients in whom a social need was identified increased from 11% to 21%, but the proportion of patients in whom resources or intervention was delivered remained constant at around 44%. And just of note, Food insecurity was the most commonly identified need in both the pre- and the post-pandemic periods. And I think this is interesting because this is something I don't think is universally screened for in all of our departments. I know we're doing, at least in mine, we're doing HIV and suicidality, but I don't think that this is routinely screened for. So just something to think about. Good point. Overall, this study shows that the screening can successfully be performed remotely. I like a study 
It's showing that we could offload some of these tasks from our already overburdened clinical staff at the bedside while still serving as the safety net that we need to be. All right, paper 21. Trauma transfers discharged from the emergency department. Is there a role for telemedicine? I think the answer to that question is always yes, especially in the case of rural medicine where access to specialties is limited and the authors in this paper agree. They reviewed about 2,300 trauma transfers, of which about a quarter were discharged directly from the trauma bay. Most needed some intervention, a lack repair, optho, splinting, or a reduction. After their analysis, they determined that 13% of the transfers could have been spared and would have benefited from telemedicine. The problem is that rural docs are often out there on their own with limited imaging and consultation available. Having access to a trauma team to discuss this case would be cush. Paper 22, Association of the 2020 U.S. Presidential Election with Hospitalizations for Acute Cardiovascular Conditions. I love this paper. It's so interesting. I am a politics junkie, and so this is just fascinating to me. Authors wanted to know if our political climate was having an impact on their patients' physical health. They looked at Kaiser members and the rate of hospital admissions for cardiovascular diseases, including MI, heart failure, and stroke, and they compared a time period both before and after the 2020 presidential election. They found the rate of cardiovascular events increased in the five days post-election by 20% and was even worse for MIs, which was up to 40%. And when you dive into the graphs, it becomes even a little bit more interesting because you can see that it started to increase three days before the election, peaked in the week after the election, and then stayed pretty high for about three weeks after the election. So maybe we should all turn off the 24-hour news networks. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that sounds crazy. crazy. I mean, total, totally predictable. Totally predictable. I, think, I mean, I know right? it's not good for my health. <laughs> I can't look away. It's like a car crash. It's like a train wreck. Oh, yeah. man. So anyway, with that interesting news at the end there, you know, we're heading into another, you know, election cycle in a couple months. <laughs> Everyone stay healthy from a COVID and a politics standpoint. Sounds good. All right. We'll see you next month. See ya. It's time talk a little natty. Talk a little natty. With Ken Lin. This is the August time to talk a little nerdy. This is Swami. I'm here as always with my good friend, Ken Milne. Ken, how's it going? I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. Perfect timing for it, August being a lumberjack. I'm imagining you very sweaty in a flannel shirt that's red and black checkered. Oh, you know I own, well, it's my favorite color, plaid. <laughs> All right, Ken. Well, we actually do have a real topic to drop into, and I know you are alluding to that topic, but a couple of weeks ago in my resident journal club, we reviewed a meta-analysis systematic review, and there were a lot of questions from the residents around forest plots. And I realized that we haven't really done a dedicated podcast to forest plots, but we touched on them back in January 2021. I thought maybe we can do a bit of a deeper dive today. Sounds good. Let's head into the woods, my friend. All right. Grab your axe. Grab your saw. One of those two-person saws, right? Just classic cartoon kicking down a tree. No, I'm going for the chainsaw. Anything with a small engine, two-cycle uh, two <laughs> engine, I'm in. All right, Ken, you got the chainsaw. I got the axe. 
let's go in and let's start really basic with what is a forest plot? Well, really basically, it's just a graphic representation of a meta-analysis. And why is it called a forest plot? Because it doesn't really look like a forest. Yeah, actually, that's a bit of a mystery. No one knows for sure where that term came from. It's shrouded in the, uh, I don't know, the annals of time. But one thing I do know is that it was not named after run, forest, run. <laughs> All right. Maybe if we, if we go a little bit into the history of the forest plot, maybe we'll tease this out a little bit. So when were they first used? Well, the origins go back into the 1970s when a publication by Freeman et al. published a figure that summarized a series of 71, and I'll put in air quotes, negative randomized control trials that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1978. Now, this was not a systematic review. What they did was just accumulate 71 randomized control trials. And what Freeman and his colleagues did is they represented a number of horizontal bars, these thick bars, like uh, back and forth horizontally, to represent the 95% confidence interval around each point estimate from each study. Now, there was also no meta-analysis with a summary statistic at the bottom of the figure, and the term forest is really thought to have been first used in a 1996 nursing publication looking at several interventions for pain. Let's go a little bit more modern. 1978, that was a year after I was born. How about a little bit more modern version of the forest plot like we see today in the systematic reviews and meta-analyses? Well, the ones that we see now in systematic reviews and meta-analyses that look like uh, blobograms with these different box sizes scattered around to represent a study size, well, the first blobogram or forest plot was produced by the Clinical Trial Service Unit in Oxford in 1998. So that's a little bit more modern. You were born then. Were you a doctor then? <laughs> I was not a doctor then. I was still in college. All right. I was practicing medicine at that time. Now, it was a summary of the 1988 BMJ publication. So a decade earlier, looking at a secondary prevention of vascular disease by prolonged antiplatelet treatment. All right. Before we get into the details of what's included in the forest plot, Let's talk about why they are used. Why are authors using forest plots to express their data, or why are they using these in these meta-analyses? Well, it is a very efficient way to summarize a large amount of data, because you've got all of these studies with all of this data, and how can you distill it down? And so it's a really efficient way to summarize all that data from the various included trials in the systematic review into this visual graphic representation. And it was definitely something that I was taught in my learning of evidence-based medicine is that when you read one of these systematic reviews and meta-analyses, read the methodology, and then go look at the forest plot, because it's going to give you so much information in a very small graph. And that visual is extremely expressive, but we need to understand exactly what's in there and also what the limitations are to that forest plot. So Ken, are there limitations to trying to express all of the information in a meta-analysis and systematic review in a forest plot? Oh, absolutely. There's several possible limitations to forest plots. Just like any method of summarizing data, you lose that granularity and you lose nuance. Sure, the point estimates and confidence intervals are there, but they don't tell us about the potential biases of the included original studies. 
the summary statistic can compound those biases and that can systematically move us away from that quote-unquote truth. Ultimately, these forest plots, they can give us this illusion of certainty, like I know because there it is in the forest plot. By providing this point estimate with sometimes a tight confidence interval around that point estimate, with some impressive p-value going down to the fifth decimal point. In other words, it cannot control for gigo, and that's garbage in, garbage out. But it can give you false confidence of certainty. And that's why we can't just look at the forest plot. We do need to read the methodology, see did the authors really do a good job of finding all of the different studies that should go into this, And then the quality of those individual studies, as we've spoken about many times when talking about systematic reviews and meta-analyses, it really only is about the quality that goes in. That's what tells you about the quality of the data that's coming out. And so we have to really understand all of those things. And you're right, you don't get all of that nuance with a forest plot, but it still can give you a lot of different information if you understand what each piece of the forest plot is. So let's look a bit into how that plot is laid out. The individual studies are on the left. There's a horizontal line with odds ratios along the bottom and a vertical line at the odds ratio of one. Why is that vertical line there? So the vertical line is in the middle of the forest plot, and that is the line of no difference or the null hypothesis. On one side of the line, that would favor the intervention that's being looked at. And on the other side of the line, that would favor the control group, the comparison group, and sometimes that's a placebo group. Each individual study offers its own odds ratio that is then plotted into that forest plot. The point odds ratio is represented by a solid box, but the boxes for individual studies are often different sizes. So what does that different size of the box mean? So what they do is they use the size of the box as a visual representation for the size of the study. So the bigger the box on that forest plot, the bigger the blob right there, that means they had a larger N for that study. Now, the flip side of that is the smaller the box, the tinier, it means you only have a few people included in that cohort for that study. That's a really important basic concept for us to understand. Bigger box, more patients in the study, smaller box, less patients. And so again, when you do that cursory look at that forest plot, you can look at it and say, Oh, well, there's 25 studies, but one study has a huge box and all of the other studies have tiny little boxes. And so that one study is really driving all of the data and all the information that we see summarized. And that's a really important thing for us to understand, especially when you talk about that idea of bad studies going in or lots of small studies going in and then creating something out of that. We need to know that information when we look at the forest plot of what those boxes mean. Each of those boxes also has a set of horizontal lines associated with them that goes in either direction. These lines represent the confidence interval for the odds ratio. Why are we putting that into the forest plot? Well, having the confidence intervals can give you two pieces of information. So one piece of information is, does that 95% confidence interval around that point estimate for the odds ratio of that particular study Does the line cross the statistical difference of no difference? So that line of one, that vertical line, and that's based on the conventional p-value of 0.05. Now, the second piece of information you can get out of those whiskers, you know, those horizontal whiskers that are coming out of those boxes, is how tight was that 95% confidence interval 
around the point estimate. Now, if you've got this really wide, like this extended line, and sometimes they have an arrow on the end saying to infinity and beyond, I would be less <laughs> confident about that particular point estimate because it could be anywhere along that line. And that line is very wide. And of course, vice versa. If you've got this really tight, this really narrow, tight confidence interval, you know that that point estimate is somewhere in there. And it's very tight, so you can have more confidence about tight or narrow confidence interval around the point estimate. All right, a little bit more on shapes in the forest plot, because when you get to the bottom of that, you see an open diamond. What does the diamond represent, and does the size of the diamond mean anything? Yeah, so to start off with, the diamond size represents all the data summarized in the meta-analysis. Now, that vertical point of the diamond that's on the top and on the bottom, that vertical part of the diamond gives us the point estimate of the observed effect size of all the data that's been meta-analyzed. And then you have the points that go out the side, the horizontal points of the diamond. And those horizontal points are the 95% confidence interval, again, for the whole data set. So if you have this long, flat diamond, you know that the confidence interval is very wide, and the data could be considered pretty fuzzy. Also, if the horizontal end of the diamond tip crosses that vertical line, then you can say, well, there's no statistical difference between the two groups being compared. A lot of information in that diamond. And, and I think it's really important that vertex of the diamond, the, the vertical vertex, that tells you the point estimate for the odds ratio. The horizontal sides give you the information of how wide the confidence interval is when they bring all of that data together. And again, if you cross that vertical line, you're crossing one, and that means that there's no statistically significant difference. Although the diamond and how much it crosses over that line also does give you some information of how close or how far away this was from achieving statistical significance. And I think that's important as well. Forest plots will also include, or, or often will include, a heterogeneity calculation. We discussed heterogeneity back in January 2021. We'll drop a link to that in the show notes. But can you just give us a quick refresher on what heterogeneity is and what it means? Sure. So heterogeneity refers to how similar, or the flip side of that is, how different are the studies that are being meta-analyzed compared to each other. And it can be quantified using the I-squared statistic. And that I-squared statistic you'll see in the bottom left-hand corner of the forest plot. And that'll be represented anywhere from 0% to 100%. Now, if you have an I-squared statistic, or the heterogeneity is zero, it means you're really comparing not just apples to apples, but the exact same type of apple. So Granny Smith to Granny Smith apple. Like, these are really, really similar. There's no heterogeneity between the studies. And then 100% heterogeneity? That means you're comparing apples to, I don't know, baseballs or something. It's not even a fruit that you would eat. So heterogeneity, if it's less than 50%, it's generally considered, you know, as low. And then as that heterogeneity gets greater, so it's on a spectrum, the argument gets stronger and stronger that, you know, maybe this data should not have been actually meta-analyzed. It might have been better for the systematic review meta-analysis with very high heterogeneity to say, listen, 
the heterogeneity is just so high, it's in the 90s or something, that maybe a narrative review of the included studies would have been better rather than trying to mash all these different studies up mathematically to again give that illusion that you've found the quote-unquote truth down to the fifth decimal point. So ideally, we're looking for lower heterogeneity. Under 50% is great. If it's even lower, that's even better. And again, it shows you how much information you can pull out of that forest plot to really give you an idea of what the data is or, or how similar that data is that was brought together. Let's put this into practice a bit. In May, Sanjay and Mike discussed the efficacy of topical tranexamic acid in epistaxis, a systematic review of meta-analysis. This was by Janapala et al. in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. There were eight studies that were included in this meta-analysis, and I thought we could look at the first forest plot comparing rates of bleeding cessation between TXA and non-TXA groups. So when you look at that forest plot, what do you see? What does it tell you? Well, what I see is that they found eight studies in their systematic review, but only six smallish studies with a total of 681 patients were actually meta-analyzed. So one of the key points I usually point out to people who are trying to learn how to read systematic reviews and meta-analyses is don't just read the abstract and say they included eight studies. Well, in this, yeah, sure, they included eight studies, but they were only able to meta-analyze six of those studies. And two of the six had a point estimate favoring the control, so that would be the placebo, or control group, or the comparison group, while four of the studies favored TXA. So when I looked at the plot, I said, okay, there's two boxes on one side and four boxes on the other side. Now the diamond was all on the side favoring TXA. But when you looked at it, that diamond statistic had a wide 95% confidence interval. The odds ratio went from 1.3 almost up to 10. Now, the heterogeneity was also very high, so I took a peek down in the bottom left-hand corner and saw that I-squared statistic, 86%, questioning the wisdom of the authors to actually meta-analyze it. Now, one final point is the largest of the eight studies that they found, Rubin et al., had almost 500 patients. And remember, they meta-analyzed 681. So you had 500 patients that weren't included in the meta-analysis. So they reported no, and I just want to remind people that the Rubin study, that was the NOPAC study, it reported no statistical superiority with TXA, but it wasn't included in the meta-analysis. That's a really important point because you got about 700 patients included in the meta-analysis. One study with 500 patients can clearly change our overall feeling about the use of TXA and epistaxis, which I think many of us have already shifted based on that Rubin study. And you can see here why that shift happens when 500 patients, it's, it's almost the same size as all of the prior studies that we have put together. And I think this points out a really important limitation, Ken, which is that if the forest plot doesn't contain all the relevant studies, it's not really that helpful in influencing your decisions of whether you should be using an intervention or doing an intervention or not. That most recent study by Rubin, we reviewed in the May 2021 EMA. People can check that out. And again, because of how much larger it is than all the other studies, it really does influence the way that we think about this intervention. And if it was included in the forest plot, 
I think it's important for us to think about how would it influence the forest plot? And Ken, I know you can't do statistics on a fly. You can't recalculate everything in this meta-analysis, but what's your your assumption or what's your guess based on how that study would have influenced the overall output from that John Apollo study? And this is the thing. You don't need the actual numbers. It's just the overarching theme. And so if you added 500 patients to the meta-analysis, which did not show superiority for TXA, it would have shifted the point estimate towards the null hypothesis. I would also like to point out that the forest plot does not speak to the potential biases in the included studies. Rubin et al. was the only study to have low risk of bias in all five domains that they assessed, whereas the other studies did have indications of bias. And so the the highest quality study, the study that had the least bias, wasn't even included in the meta-analysis. Ken, I think overall, this short podcast we just put together really does give people an idea of what forest plots are, how to interpret them, and why we need to be comfortable looking at those when we're reviewing systematic reviews and meta-analyses to really understand that data. And I think it really is important for us to remember that while the forest plot gives us a ton of information, we can't just look there. We still need to review the methodology, understand how they did their selection, and really have an idea of all of the data that is out there or or what is out there that may not be included as we point out specifically with TXA and epistaxis and how important that is. But I think this is a good primer to be comfortable with interpreting forest plots, understanding how to use them and how they can influence our care of patients. So Ken, I I really appreciate going through all of this with us. And and we, of course, have some great resources in the show notes that people can look at to get a little bit more information about forest plots. Ken, uh, I can't wait to come back next month. And thanks for reviewing forest plots. No, I I love doing this, uh, you know, segment with you on Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. And I think it gets back to that overarching point of you can't just come in with a systematic review meta-analysis, throw it down on the table and say, aha. Look at the forest plot. Look at that point estimate. I have the answer. And that oversimplifies things way too much. Like most things in evidence-based medicine, the answer is, it all depends. All right, Ken, great way to end the podcast. I can't wait to have you back next month. We'll talk about another one of these topics. And until next time, everyone out there, remember to stay nerdy. We made it! And that's a wrap, bro! Wow. This was a, you know... This month, honestly, was dynamite. This was like so many good papers, good papers, big trials, stuff we'd never heard of, new medications. The only thing that was problematic with this month, honestly, was that your house is imploding. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the duration of this recording, the house has gone from <laughs> some <was> manageable <laughs> level of insanity to completely unmanageable, including both kids sick. They're screaming. The dog. That brile. The dog started throwing up. The dog started throwing up. I don't know what's happening at this house. I'm just fingers crossed that Amanda and I could somehow not get sick. Now I'm worried about Mike getting sick. Yeah. I walked in here. I was like, hey, buddy, how's it going? Oh, everything's good. And it was like, it's been like a crying child that's like, I'm happy. Now I'm crying. And I'm febrile, and now I'm better. And yeah. then the dog, the dog throwing up really that was, was really the, the coup de grace, <laughs> yeah, as they say. The, the icing on the cake <laughs> yes. for no reason just at like, all. You know, I'm not going to be left out of this. This I see. I see the extra attention the children have been getting for the last two days. <laughs> yeah. I want me some of that. <laughs> I want in on that. Because then it wasn't like you know, 
Because it's not unusual for Toby to be in here for part of the recording. Like, that's yeah. not strange. He just, like, sits at my feet. It's, like, not that yeah. big of a deal. But even, or, like, he looked a little off even when he was in here before and then just started throwing up. It was, it really <laughs> has been quite an experience. It's been, a, it's been different. <laughs> for those of you who don't have children, enjoy, don't. <laughs> enjoy, <laughs> yeah. enjoy these days. For those of you who do. You la- <laughs> For those of you who do, in a week or two, you could all laugh with me. We'll be behind this. We'll, we'll, I remember when my kid, the whole family was sick and had AG and blah, blah, blah. It happens to the best of us. Mike, I hope you don't get sick. For the rest of you, hope you enjoyed the August but even, EMA. But even if you do get sick, even if you do. Oh, if you're laying in bed, you're not vomit, feeling well. Sweat all over you. You got the, the, the puke bin next to you. All of that stuff. Still. You got to find can- a way. You stay classy. You stay classy, even when you're sick. Stay sick classy.